Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers. We hope you're doing very well. Thank you for joining us here in this episode. And this is the first episode in a little special mini-series that we're going to be doing this season on Double O Origins, or if you prefer, Double O Histories. It's really just a, a chance for the three of us to um, uh, take a little look at features of the intelligence world and spycraft that um, kind, of, have kind of helped create uh, the, the fascinating world of, of James Bond. And we're going to do this by looking at uh, little areas of our own interest. So... Yeah, joining me, Scott, as always, my brothers in Bond across the pond. Hello. I'm Jeff. <laughs> I'm, I'm in Josh. Ottawa. <laughs> also in Ottawa. And uh, Josh is going to take the reins now in a few minutes, and he's going to introduce for us his Double O Origins feature. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Not too Good. bad. Not too bad. Good. I was up on the roof today cleaning out the gutters in my house. Now, um, in terms of the unenviable spring tasks, that's that's definitely high up there on the list. Did you Literally. use the jetpack from Thunderball? <laughs> no, man, I didn't. I, I wasn't lucky enough to have one of those. Uh, I did, however, use the <laughs> I used the bathroom window, which doesn't open fully, and I crawled out onto the roof of the garage, and then I, you know, carefully crawled my way around like. Uh, I don't know. It was a mess. It was a mess. Anyway, so my back That's is... very my, Bondian, I must say. Well, yeah, only I was in plain sight of all my neighbors who, you know, probably have a better way of doing it than I do. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to reference another film called Vertigo. Did you have any of that? <laughs> no, uh, no, but I have in the past, so I was quite lucky uh, today. I, if I'm up any further than, like, four steps on a ladder, I'm gone. <laughs> I, I'm serious. Like, uh, yeah, no, no, man, it's a serious thing. Uh, I, I, don't... I sweat when I play snakes and ladders. <laughs> I like, you know, so yeah, I'm no good. <laughs> Sorry, go. Ahead. Yeah, that's that's intense. Um, no, I mean, vertigo's a real thing, but I mean, my garage oh, yeah. isn't that high up off the off the off the off the ground. Uh, I also have started. I don't know how you about you guys over in Canada, but here in Scotland, the wasps and the hornets and those little pests are starting to try to work their way into the homes. Uh, not quite yet. I noticed some beetles around outside, but that's about it so far. Uh, the be- beetles are all season, though, aren't they? Well, uh, there, 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 Canada, there's a couple of those, like, those, <laughs> no, shield stink, no. those shield bugs. They sort of hibernate during the winter, and then they, when it starts thawing, then they come out of the woodworks. Uh, are those the stink ones? Are they the ones that kind of... Sp- yeah, they're that's called correct. cinch bugs or chinch bugs. I don't know. The, well, at least that's what I, I was told that they're called. They're little brown things. and then they, like, They're so small, but man, they smell so bad. Yes. <laughs> How can something so small... Wait wait till kids come well, in life and yeah, you realize... I was, was going to say that's man, a reference man. to, to yeah. infants. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you what, a dog or a cat as well, that also applies. That's true. Oh. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I was... Uh, there's a great line in a John Prine song, um, Jesus, the Missing Years. I don't know if you guys know that song, but he talks about, um, he's like, all the world smelled like poo, baby poo, the worst kind. And <laughs> he's not wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. Sounds sounds like a Robin Williams skit as well. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we're we're getting off track before we even started. Slightly. Um, slightly. Yeah. So welcome very much indeed. You're the one who had jumped us and dropped us into the domestic territory. Okay. So I yeah, did. I'm sorry. Fine. That's right. But I know. I know. You know. But listen, in lockdown, right? In lockdown, <laughs> cleaning cleaning the gutters is about as exciting as it gets for most people in homes. So true, I have true. to. I got to share my excitement when it when it. Were you listening to a podcast while you were doing it? 
No, I wasn't. No. Um, but perhaps, you know, as a great segue, Josh, uh, thanks for bringing that up. I have discovered a new podcast series and uh, I would encourage all, all of our listeners to, uh, to go check this out. Stuart Copeland, who is the, pol- or was the, uh, the drummer for the police. And he's a, uh, I mean, it's a percussionist who's and a composer who's done lots of different films and projects and whatnot. Anyway, uh, Stuart Copeland, uh, has released this, uh, actually, it was last year he released this uh, short series podcast through Audible called My Dad or My Father the Spy. Um, and it's it's all about his father, Miles Copeland, who was an attache to, uh, or was it a U.S.? Yeah, an attache. That's the expression, right? An attache. Yeah, that's the United attache, States. Yes. Yep. 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 In uh, Syria. In Syria and Lebanon during um, the years after World War II. And very interestingly, um, you know, the Copelands moved around a lot in the Middle East and dad was a businessman. But in, in uh, his teenage years, he discovered actually his dad was a CIA. Uh, and I, I hesitate to use the word operative because the CIA wasn't really born in that sense at this point. So he was really uh, one of the first, I don't know what you would call them, um, well, an attaché, but what would you call someone who isn't so much of a an operative in an existing organization, but really like um, a pioneer of that organization? Well, founder, I mean, progenitor. Now he he wasn't a founder. He wasn't one of the guys who you know was like uh, creating it all. But he was like one of the first field field agent, I guess, if you can think. Well, of that I way. mean, you could you could just call him like a. I mean, I would say you could just call him a field agent or. A, he was an asset, I guess mm. you could say. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way of saying it, I suppose. And the, and you said this was uh, shortly after World War II, uh, because there was actually one full year where there was no foreign intelligence mm-hmm. agency for the U.S. between uh, 45 and 46, and then in 47, the CIA was created. Mm-hmm. It just, it just, I don't know, there's just little nuggets. There you go. No, but, but uh, it's a really interesting show anyway. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to, you know, distract us or derail us before we get no, started no, too no. much. But, but, it's but anyway. on point. No, it's on point. It's sure. on point to what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, Miles Copeland, sure. um, really interesting guy. He wrote a couple of books and in, in, uh, was was behind the design of a, uh, a board game called The Game of Nations, which is also a neat tie into something we got coming up later in the season. But oh, it, uh, he, he was... Just an interesting figure, you know, a bit of a raconteur, a bit of a, uh, um, not not a soldiering type, but a schmoozing and intellectual type who managed uh, to, you know, become a really successful asset for his government in these early days mm. of Cold War espionage mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm. And it's also as much about the family learning this and kind of living through it and, <laughs> and all of the big... Uh, all the big Middle Eastern figures that, you know, would always be over at the house and all of these sorts <laughs> yeah. of things, you know. But yeah. really, really good series. My Dad the Spy. I mean, it. I've got an Audible um, membership, like I'm sure a lot of our listeners do, and it doesn't cost anything. And in fact, I don't even know if it would cost anything uh, to do one of these trials, you know, if you just wanted to do one of like a, a free week or free month trial or something like that, you could check it out. Uh, it, it didn't cost me any credits, if you see what I mean. But I was I was really pleased to find that because on our other show, Josh and I have uh, uh, just kind of wrapped up work on the Raymond Chandler review, I guess, or survey. And I was looking for something to buffer the reading, you know, um, between books. And I found this. And yeah, it's it's been really great for my walks and my uh, 
workouts and stuff like that. It's really interesting stuff, and it fits in so nicely with what we're going to talk about today in an interesting way. But um, before we get into Josh's feature, let's talk a little bit, boys, about what's been going on in the world of James Bond, because we've had some deaths, we've had some birthdays, and uh, a few announcements. Yeah, I guess the deaths, uh, the big one, actress Helen McCrory, uh, mm-hmm. best known for playing uh, Narcissa Malfoy in the Harry Potter films. Also great performances on Peaky Blinders and Penny mm-hmm. Dreadful. Uh, she's the wife of uh, Damien Lewis, probably one of the best actors these days. Mm. Uh, she died of cancer at 52 just a couple of days ago. Very so young. that really sucks. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. great talent, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a glad, huge yeah. Damien Lewis fan. Like I love Band of oh, Brothers yeah. so oh, much. Yeah. Like Richard Winters was an amazing portrayal. Also, that he him did. in uh, Wolf Wolf Hall as well. Henry the Eighth, best Henry the Eighth yeah. since uh, yeah. Robert Shaw, I, I would Absolutely. say. I yeah. agree with you. But anyway, yeah, uh, Helen McCrory, fantastic actress. She played that uh, judge sitting on the council for M in uh, Skyfall. Mm-hmm. It was a small role, but she's always good in what she was in. And uh, yeah. Had, uh, tip of the hat, tip of the hat to her. Uh, very sorry about her struggle. Glad that her struggle is over. I guess you could say, but sorry that we lost a, a, a very leading light in the uh, in the in the acting uh, field. Mm-hmm. For sure. And Lois Giles, Dr. Holly Goodhead, just moving on from that sad point. Um, celebrated her seventy fourth. Am I right in saying that, Josh? Yeah, yeah, seventy fourth birthday. Yeah, seventy fourth birthday. Yeah. Very exciting, yeah. I think one of the under one one of the underrated and underappreciated Bond girls. Um, I remember she we, was. Uh, we had a chat, didn't we? Um, following a James Bond radio um, kind of invitation, I guess you could call it that, to do like the the Desert Island Bond stuff, which yes, was a great show yes, that they had. Yeah. And right. she was she was my choice, man, for Bond lady, Bond it. girl to be platonically stuck on an island with, you know. I think that Very she, resourceful. you know, intelligent, resourceful, obviously attractive. How long would good it company. stay platonic, though? Let's be honest. I, how long's a piece of string? Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. Was the, <laughs> Lois Charles was a good Bond girl, but she was in the wrong film, the wrong production yep. for her character. Yep. Like. Because in the end, they reduced her to a damsel in distress. Well, for that one sequence, like, imagine if she had figured out how to escape from the, uh, how would you describe that? The chamber in which uh, the ro- the fire from the rockets come down into the uh, installation. Because remember, they were oh, trapped right, in that yeah. in that meeting in that briefing room underneath, mm-hmm. like the the engines of the of the, yeah, yeah. the space let's, shuttle. Let's just call it the rocket pan. Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's a name for it. The rocket petri dish? I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> the rocket like, bedpan? I don't know. I'm sure there's a name from it, and I'm just having a brain it's okay. fart right now. Well, it's not something yeah. that's usually on the tip of any of our tongues. The exhaust really, pat. Yeah. There you go. The, the, yes, the exhaust not, pat. Not the thermal exhaust port. <laughs> No, that's something different. No. But, but that's something Much, different. Much something different. It's so only it's two, smaller. And that's only yeah, two meters exactly. the size of a Womper app, right? It's only, yeah, so. <laughs> it's a lot smaller. <laughs> uh, geekdom crossover, geekdom crossover. Sorry, sorry. Well, kind of. like I, It was sort of a James Bond of Star Wars is the one that helped uh, well, figure out about the exhaust port. Uh, bring it back. Right. Cassian Andor in Rogue that's One, true. right? He helped yeah, get okay, the Death Star okay. plans, right? So That's true. There you go. Bringing it back, bringing it back. He's kind of a double O Star Wars guy. Um Kind of. All right. So yeah. There, so there's that. Uh, so happy birthday, Lois Childs. Uh, 
Thanks for being an underrated Bond girl. You're well appreciated. Yes. And um, Mads Mikkelsen, Jeff? Uh, yeah. So it looks like he's been cast as the villain for Indy 5, which, I mean, could be good. I mean, I'm happy the cast looks good, but I, I'm just, I was I was talking to uh, my girlfriend about this. Like, I don't know what to think because I was very disappointed with the most recent, which isn't even that recent, in regarding the Crystal Skull. Um but uh, I'm hoping with the addition to Mads and the rest of the cast that maybe this will be, uh, this will sort of reinvigor the franchise. But having Mads in anything will make make it better. Uh, so I'm hoping that, uh, you know, since he's been cast, that that's going to, I guess, I don't know, um, make the, the gumbo a bit spicier. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like I like your Cajun references. Uh, interesting. You context. know he's Danish, so why not go with the Cajun reference, right? Just to screw oh, everything up. A- absolutely, absolutely. I don't know. I'd but, like to uh, try Danish gumbo. That would be very interesting. It would be. It would be. It probably involves alcohol, most likely. Uh, <laughs> before we learned about that movie that uh, that Matt Mickelson is in, uh, oh, another yes. round. Yeah, that's right. They, yes, they that's love right, their right. they love their drinking. It's like a cultural thing, right? Uh, <laughs> but moving forward, though. You just mentioned Mads Mikkelsen, and I think one of the worries we have about Indiana Jones 5, just as a sidebar, is how good is Harrison Ford going to be in it? In my opinion, if he brings the same moxie and uh, energy that he did in The Force Awakens as Han Solo, which I thought he was great in that small part he was in that movie, I think he'll be okay. He has to kind of, like, play the older Indiana Jones. Like, it's not like Indiana Jones in the Crystal Skull where he's pretending not to be an older Indiana Jones. Like he mm-hmm. he needs yeah. to really kind of embrace his age, and they have to play wow. with that in 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 the narrative. You know what I mean? I agree with That's... you. I'm not I'm not sure that they will, but I I would like to see an Indiana Jones that is almost purely academic here in this one. Maybe he's the Miles. Yeah, you know, or not the Miles. And, and Phoebe Waller Bridge's character is like his uh, his a uh, uh, protege, I guess you could say. Well, sure, whatever. Also, but... bringing it back. She wrote. She co-wrote No Time to Die. So there we go. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if Indiana Jones is a teacher in this one, or is a scholar like his dad was, you know, I think that there's nothing wrong with that. He can still have a very no. serviceable and fun yeah. agency in the story, as long as they don't I, overwrite him, like Jeff is suggesting. Well, yeah. Well, I just hope that uh, Matt Mickelson's a great cast, but I mean, Kate Blanchett was a gay, was a great cast for the Crystal Skull, and look how that turned out. That's probably not one of my favorite Kate Blanchett performances. No, no. no. But speaking uh, speaking of Kate Blanchett, shall we use her as oh, a yeah, uh, there we go. as There's a segue a, oh, into you, you discussing Ooh. and introducing your show? Because you know the listeners have been with us now for ten minutes or so, and I think it's time, Josh, that uh, we we raise the curtain on what you're about to do. Yeah, that's a very good segue, Scott. Um, Kate Blanchett, as, as many people may know, she played Elizabeth the first in, in the film Elizabeth. Uh, one of my favorite films, despite its inaccuracies, as I've come to learn. Uh, but one of the characters that really stands out in that film, despite, you know, Blanchett's performance, is, of course, uh, Jeffrey Rush's portrayal of Sir Francis Walsingham. And I and this is sort of his pop cultural image of Walsingham as this uh, spy master for Elizabeth I, uh, you know, arranging, you know, uh, all this subterfuge to, you know, bring down the Catholic plotters against the throne and him almost having like these Godfather, like assassination arrangements, you know, at the end of the movie, which is a bit over the top, of course, but you know, that's just the image of him quoting Machiavelli throughout the movie. And, and so that already stuck with me historically, but then I came to learn that a lot of the stuff that he did was true. 
and that in fact he was he's considered as the progenitor of really uh, the modern British Secret Service. Mm, interesting. So, so you know he is in fact I guess you could say for this series that we're doing Double O Origins I guess you know mm-hmm. uh, he is for, in fact I guess you could say Double O Walsingham. Um, or Double O Puritan, as uh, he should be called. Should I call him W? <laughs> or th- like his letter, right? Because, you know, like MQ, like... Oh, yeah, just call him W. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, like W. He never had the nickname W, unfortunately, which had been really cool. I'm pretty sure that some missives that were sent out probably referred to him as such. But one of the monikers that he was well known as was Mr. Secretary. Mm. Cool. Uh, because he was te- technically that. He was a secretary. He was... He was principal secretary of the Privy Council to Queen Elizabeth I from 1573 to 1590, um, from the time of his appointment to that position to his death in 1590. Oh, uh, and it's it's really this area of his influence, not just um, not just in the royal court, but his influence as, as as you say, Josh, that sort of origin figure in intelligence, really for for British British intelligence. And you're going to get in today, aren't you? Talking about the spycraft, talking about the history, the relationships he had, and and kind of how this connects to what we appreciate today as as a as an intelligence organization that we see, even if it's a facsimile thereof in the Bond films. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Um, that's what I plan to, to get into, go into the details of the spy craft that he utilized uh, during his career, and some so, and some stuff that was very innovative for its time. That that you know that has been, I think, uh, shown to be exemplary, and therefore used in the years to follow from his time. Cool. Yeah. That is good, and so, I, and I think that Josh, you know, just before you you take over and kind of let us lead us through this stuff, um, Jeff and myself will follow up later this season with episodes of our own with Double O Origins. We both got our own little research areas that we're looking into, and we're really excited about. But this is the one that's going to start it off, and and we decided, Josh, to give you the lead on this simply because it is sort of that origins, so the, the current yeah. chronological order of yeah. how things, how the how that's the right. hamster wheel started to spin here. And the realm, and the defense of the realm. Yeah. The defense of the realm, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and thanks again, everybody, for, for joining us. We really hope you enjoy this. If you're history buffs, we think there's a lot in it that you're going to like. Josh has got a lot of great content planned. If you're Bond fans, then this is going to give you the blueprint of, of one of the most popular, or perhaps the most popular spy that uh, existed when the word spy wasn't really used. That's right. So, who is Sir Francis Walsingham? As I mentioned a few moments ago, he was the Principal Secretary of the Privy Council to Queen Elizabeth I. Now, Principal Secretary today, it's the same role, really, with much more greater duties. In terms of the English government, the British government, I should say, uh, it's basically Secretary of State. So when I say that Walsingham was Principal Secretary of the Privy Council, he was basically Secretary of State. You have the Queen at the top, and then below you have the Principal Secretary, and then all of the other secretaries that were part of this Privy Council that advised the Queen and mm-hmm. uh, ran the affairs of the realm. So you have one place, you have like the Exchequer, who is basically the Treasury, uh, and then you have like the head of certain factions, uh, the, the Admiralty of the armies, all those different people filling out those certain roles. But the principal secretary was the one that the queen spoke to the most and gave advice to the queen and whatnot. So 
just some details about Walton before we kind of dig deep into him. Uh, he was married twice. Uh, his first wife died only uh, only two years after they were married in, in, the, in 1562. And then afterwards, he married a wealthy widow named Ursula St. Barb Worsley, uh, from which he had two children. She One of wealthy. his children... She does, yeah. yeah. Um, so many last cool. names. Yeah, Ursula, bringing it back to Bond a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't Ursula Andrus, though. Uh, I was going to um, say Little Mermaid, but yeah, that makes more sense. Yep. Uh, while we were saying, you know, that Walsingham is double O agent, I, you know, was the original double O agent, uh, one thing that he didn't have in common with Bond was he was not a womanizer. He was very monogamous, and he was a Puritan, which James Bond is anything but. Mm. Is that true, or, or has the history record, like, insisted upon that reading of him? There is nothing from the historical records to indicate that uh, Walsingham was in any way uh, a womanizer, or, or even if he had any affairs, like, from, mm-hmm. what, I, from what I've read on him. Right. So actually, uh, sorry, Jeff, I was just going to ask uh, Josh to, yeah, cite, yeah. to cite the sources, um, not to cite them, but because you have done a lot of research here, Josh, do you want to just take a minute before we go any further and just kind of share with the audience the, the books oh, you'd yeah. recommend on the subject? Because you have put a lot of time in on this one. Oh, for sure. If you ever want to read up on Walsingham and just and also the early history of simply the Secret Service in England, uh, check out uh, Her Majesty's Spymaster by Stephen Budiansky. Uh, Budiansky is a is a military historian, and uh, his book Her Majesty's Spymaster, Elizabeth I, Sir Francis Walsingham, and the Birth of Modern Espionage is one of my prime sources for this episode. Uh, it's a very detailed look at Walsingham's life. It's a it's built up from collections of letters uh, between Walsingham and the various ministers, such as Sir William Cecil, who was his mentor and who he ended up succeeding as principal secretary. Also guys well-known in the time period, like Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, who was pretty much Elizabeth's paramour and uh, the, the one, her true love that she never really had, but he was also the head of the Puritan faction. So he was one of the most powerful figures in England at the time. Uh, also, just letters between all the different agents that Walsingham used and personal friends that he knew. Um, all, and, of course, also uh, extracts from like from French and Spanish ambassadors of the time. So it's very, very well researched and gives you the full picture of everything. And eyewitnesses who were there for certain events as well, like the execution of Mary Queen of Scots, that's all in there as well. So you get you know descriptions of all how that went down. Uh, very well detailed, very well written as well. Like... I find nowadays, if you pick up a nonfiction book, you almost get as they're almost as entertaining as reading a mm-hmm. um, a fiction novel nowadays because history has become a much more popularized than, yeah, than, I think than, that's than a, that's a because good point. the proliferation of like mm-hmm. documentaries you see on TV nowadays and everything. So, and just the depiction of I guess of you know in film and TV high budget productions that people get really interested in in this kind of stuff. Wow, that's a very good observation. I would agree with you on that. Yeah, so I just think now, you know, any historical nonfiction book you pick up is destined to be a really good read. So if you have like a certain topic of history you're interested in, go to your local uh, chapters or well, your or, Walden or books <laughs> or your Waterstone or wherever curbside you might be. Uh, curbside pickup, yeah. Or your libraries, if you still do that. Anyways, that's my push for uh, greater nonfiction historical literacy. So there you go. Uh, another source I had, too, was Elizabeth I, A Study of Insecurity from the Penguin Monarch Collection. And uh, that was uh, written by uh, Helen Castor, who is a well-known medieval and uh, Tudor historian. She appears on BBC a lot. Um, oh, yeah. She wrote a great book, which was another one of my sources on pre 
Walsingham and uh, Henry VIII and Queen Mary and all that, which is her book, uh, She-Wolves, fantastic book. Um, and then another one I have too is uh, Julian Norwich's uh, The History of France, which provided a lot of background on the machinations uh, politically with uh, France and England, as well as Walsingham's time uh, with with contrasting notes from not contrasting but with compar- comparative notes from Her Majesty's spymaster on Walsingham's time in Paris during the Saint Bartholomew's massacre. Okay, nice. That's a good. That's a good trip stitch. Also, a documentary I wanted to point out that I saw on Code Breaking. Um, the series is called The Science of Secrecy, and uh, it's based off. It was basically the author. He hosted a series on BBC in two thousand. And uh, it's based off his his own book, uh, the Book of Code, uh, in which he just goes into the history of code breaking at, in in general. And one of the episodes he covers is um, Wals- is the Babington plot, which is one of the big moments of Walsingham's career. Cool. I think maybe I can play devil's advocate here, but um, I would say Walsingham is similar to William Stevenson, who. Uh, as, mm. as Bond, as Bond uh, fans and and um, Fleming literary fans know that he is obviously the main uh, individual that inspired the character of Bond. But Stevenson wasn't really a spy because he really didn't do any operations. But he was sort of like the guy. He was the he was the spy master, which is not really a spy. He's kind of the one that kind of ran. Everything. He was the one that, that that had the group of operatives and told them to go and do this and get the information. He even that he would compile the information, look at it, send it to more people, and then run it up the flagpole. And I think Walsingham is a, is kind of like the Stevenson of that time because he really is a spy master. Because he didn't really. I mean, well, I guess we'll find out through uh, through uh, Josh's episode today, but I would say that Walsingham probably wasn't as much of an operative himself as he was sort of like the um, the spy master or the um, case officer, but but something to the effect of he was the one behind the scenes running it mm-hmm. uh, more than he would have been an operative himself. Yeah, he wasn't an operative, so if you ever seen that movie Elizabeth where you see him like in, in, in France where he like kills an assassin, would-be assassin, or when he actually... <laughs> very unhistorically murders Mary of Guise, like poisons her uh, after having sex with her, like in her castle in Scotland in the last half of the movie. That did not happen whatsoever. Walsingham was not an agent like that whatsoever. He was a bureaucrat. Okay, and, so would it, be, uh, would it be more appropriate then to, I mean, in context of this program, Josh, would it be more appropriate, instead of calling him uh, a double O, is he more like M? Yeah, that's why I was going like to say he's M. W. That's why I was saying he should be called just W because he's not as much of like a spy as he is sort of like the one sending out the bombs. Mm, the dungeon master. <laughs> yeah. There you go. No, that, no that's true. <laughs> now, the thing about Walsingham, yeah, he was a Puritan and even and even uh, Puritans were kind of like the most extreme type of Protestants at the time as well. I mean, there's a great thing Robin Williams says about, you know, in one of, in one of his skits about how like Puritans – People so uptight, the English throw them out. You know what I mean? And and of course, they found in America. So I, I mean, I, I guess that's something. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's something. Anyways, I just that that's something. That's something. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. But it also keep. That's why. That's why I think that puritanical sort of 
foundation still exists in America to this day, I guess you could say. But um, even like the Queen Elizabeth I, she hated uh, Puritans, and they would come in and they would correct her on her like her grammar, or they would, or not her grammar, but they would correct her on her profanity because apparently Elizabeth I swore a lot. Uh, there's a story about how uh, one priest says, you know, we have to find parishes for 30,000 priests or something like that. And she's like, she literally says like, Jesus Christ, 30,000? And like, that's quoted like, like in a... Wow, on a, that's blasphemy. On a document. Then. Elizabeth didn't believe like in that religion should take over, you know, your whole identity. She believed that it was mm. something that you would, you would ardently follow and, you know, you would, you know, you would be a good Christian and that you would, you know, just, and it would be a sacred day on Sundays to go to church and do all that. And then all the business of the realm could happen around that. That's what she believed in. Of course, there was another religion against that, that did not believe that at all, that, that the religion, Christianity, should be in every aspect of the daily life. Of course, that would be Roman Catholicism and the powers that, you know, worshipped it. Spain, France, and of course, the Papal States. Mm. Holy Roman Empire, all of that. So I'm kind of putting together now, I guess in a Bond context, you can think of that Protestant-Catholic dichotomy as West versus East, Mm -hmm. or like capitalist versus Soviet. Mm -hmm. You have these two ideologies competing against each other for control of the soul, whilst more secular, non-religious forces are taking over, such as humanism, neoclassicism, artistic expression. You know, it's the seeds of these ideas that are planted in the Renaissance and the Reformation Mm -hmm. that would later lead to the Age of Enlightenment when science and reason would gradually come to the fore, where where that time is when the the big revolutions start happening, the American Revolution, uh, the uh, French Revolution in particular. So this was the slow beginning of a change, right? Uh, but Walsingham and his contemporaries, they were not there yet. You know, they had their cold war and hot war of religion mixed with a sense of growing nationalism. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, Philip II, King of Spain, for most of our talk today, will be the Blofeld, essentially, of this, uh, <laughs> of this time, working in tandem with the Pope, his Inquisition, and the forces that sought to rid, of, rid England of Protestantism. I guess he's sort of the specter of sorts uh, in, in that sense, too. Uh, now, you mentioned Walsingham as an M figure, and that's clearly what he might have been, or like a Bill Tanner type, chief of staff, perhaps. Um, I put M as clearly Elizabeth I because, I mean, wow. Judy Dench even played her once, right? So, <laughs> Okay, that's fair. Uh, I was just saying because the actual definition of Spymaster is, and well, it says an espionage agent who directs a network of subordinate agents. That's true. But Yeah, I agree I mean, with you. But, yes, I, I, I'm just trying to... I guess play devil's advocate here. You, you'll you'll sort of uh, let us know, but I don't think he necessarily won any actual like covert operative missions as a spy. He he used his his influence as his position and and his uh, and his many little uh, agents to to go around and do his bidding, which which is basically the definition of spy master. Well, the thing about Walsingham is, we'll get into it, he comes from a legal background. He wanted, he uh, studied to be a lawyer. That was his That was his plan, because his father was a lawyer. And if you think about it, another very influential figure uh, in a previous regime in England, who, who, was, or who was a lawyer, who started out that way and ended up becoming, you know, basically the right-hand man of Henry VIII, even pretty much in, uh, using spycraft and uh, to incriminate, you know, uh, various figures that, that Henry VIII know, wanted him to destroy. Teacher, teacher, who? pick me, pick me. Pick the teacher. Who, Scott? Sir Thomas More. 
No. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, pick me, pick me, sir. The man I'm talking about oh. is Thomas Cromwell. Oh, oh or, yeah. Well, Moore was a lawyer as well. Yes, he was. And, and he did and persecute w- people. He did. He was also one of the early Protestants in England at that time as well. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, moving forward. So just, uh, that's basically. Who, Thomas Moore? Yeah, so. Thomas Moore no. was a Protestant. No, Thomas Cromwell was. Oh, Cromwell, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh totally, Cromwell, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Thomas Cromwell was was a Protestant. Well, uh, he was he was he, he was trying to get the Act of Succession signed, wasn't he? Exactly. Hmm. Anyway, he sorry, was. dude. I'll, I'll go back in my cage. Okay, <laughs> I love it. Okay, so we, we we can dispute, you know, whether or not uh, he was M or not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I totally agree with the way with the argument that you laid there, Jeff. That it makes a lot of sense that he is the M because he is the spy master, as you could say. Uh, the sub M or the chief of staff was clearly William Cecil, uh, Lord Burley, who was, yeah. um, yeah. who Elizabeth called her spirit. Uh, that was basically her, she had nicknames for all of her privy council members and he was her spirit. This is the man that supported her when her sis- half-sister Mary came to the throne and England plunged into Catholicism again after her brother, after Edward VI died. He was basically the one that wrote to her and kept her in, in good spirits so that by the time that Mary was uh, Mary passed away, he was instrumental in, in making sure that she would succeed to the throne of England. So Cecil was a huge player. Uh, he was also, his pro- and Walsingham was his protege, and we'll get into that. And of course, Walsingham as a spy master employed various agents, uh, one of them uh, because he had access to mil- to you know control the military, a secretary uh, was Francis Drake, a privateer, which is basically a legalized pirate, essentially. Mm, yeah. Um, there's a man called Gifford who we'll talk about in the Babington plot. Not Kathy Lee's husband. Not Kathy uh, Lee's husband. I think no. it was Frank. Did Frank Gilbert pass Gip- away? A long time ago. Frank used to do ago. the Sunday night, Monday night football. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. He did. He did. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, sorry guys. That's right. You can, no worries. You can depend on I, me for I saw these, where you these were types going of quality it. interjections. I, of course. I saw where you were going with that. I knew it. I knew you were going to mention that. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's all right. So we have Gilbert Gifford. Uh, he is uh, not Frank Gifford, just to clarify what Scott was saying. <laughs> A lot of the men that Walsingham used were compromised individuals looking for money or to pardon themselves in some way. So that's how he was able to employ his agents. You know what? They were that, there for queen and country. They were there to, for their own survival. There's a lot of, I mean, that to be honest with you, that actually does sum up a lot of how intelligence agencies and spy masters do, um, do sort of um, reel people in to be, to work for them. It's either money or blackmail or, or, you know, to be a patriot for whatever the cause is. So that, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. Bond is a bond is a bit of a, an enigma. I mean, there's reasons why people become a spy, but if you think about Bond though, uh from what we get from like Skyfall and whatnot, like he was a an, an orphan that was raised to become like an orphan that was pretty much shaped by the British government to become uh, to become James Bond, to become a spy, an instrument of the state. So I'm sure there was also people being, you know, trained in that fashion too, but they were probably of lower class, right? So and also people at the time who would sign up because, you know, they wanted to help the Protestant cause, to help mm-hmm. the Queen's cause. So, you know, there's patriotism in that as well. Uh, it is rumored, actually, that one of it, Walsingham's agents, and so I don't have much information on this, so I could never, so I'm not going to really talk about it. But apparently Christopher Marlowe, the playwright, mm-hmm. was an agent of Walsingham. Ooh, well, that's, that's what up. I heard as well, and that when he died... Um, when he was murdered uh, with a knife through the eye and all that stuff, that took place on assignment, so to speak. 
Oh. Yes. Yeah, you I know, heard something about has, that. Hazard pay, I guess. Did he get paid <laughs> I guess so, posthumously? Yeah. But he didn't. Um, I mean, I had heard for a while, actually, that, that Marlowe was a spy. I'm, I remember when I first looked into um, his life, when I when I decided to teach his works, uh, that, yeah, that, that, that was it. Like, that was just a part of what he did. But as you're saying, Josh... Um, people could have been recruited to do any number of jobs without necessarily understanding that, oh, this makes me a spy. Well, no, I was just a playwright who carried a, a loaf of bread down the street and ended up, you know, sticking a screwdriver in someone's neck. Like, that, that's just what I did, because that's what I was paid to do. It didn't make me a spy, right? Very French but, connection, but you know your, <laughs> your imagery there, like, with, yeah. with the bread, you know, with the bread in, in the bag. But no you know worries. what's funny, no, though, like is that if you look, there's so many examples of literary uh, authors, or literary authors, okay, that's figures, yeah. superfluous, but um, that are spies, so especially British. Uh, there's tons of authors throughout, like, the 20th century, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and obviously before that, um, that uh, Somerset Maudley, there's a lot of authors. And Graham Greene? Like yeah, they're, like, they're, they had some kind of tie to intelligence work, and yeah, so they're, I'm just giving, well, yeah, but again, here's another example, very early example of if, if he indeed was uh, some kind of an operative or spy. I mean, there's a there's a famous author. I didn't even know that, but that's funny how if you, it, it it clearly it 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 still gives you an example of um um yeah you know, it's a trend isn't still it? having well, a, a trend. Yeah, it's funny, yeah. but I think but, it's probably because they're 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 intelligent and they can and obviously if they have to be able to procure information. Uh, dissem- uh, disseminate uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. You can't have someone who doesn't know how to read or write. Uh, and, and and again, point, yeah. w- w- we could we could talk about this at a later point. But there's always those type of people, characters, like the actual type of person that are operatives and agents. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we will get into that. But just to suppose, yeah. uh, just to piggyback on what you're saying, Jeff. Like I think history also has, and I guess everyone who who participates in the great game of history, whether it's through reading or whatever does have a tendency to, or we rather, popular historians have a tendency to romanticize things like that too. So it makes it cooler to to think that Christopher Marlowe was a spy, for example. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and, and then, and then it's that a kind good of story. It's a good story. It's a exactly. good story. Yeah. Exactly. And so exactly. the folk, the folklore would lean in that direction. If it's true. I wonder if he would call himself an agent, you know, or a spy. I, yeah. I probably not. That's true. He's like, He's just like, he, yeah, like Christopher Marlowe, he's like, I was just serving my country. That's all he was doing. And I'm also a playwright, you know, that's, there you, go. you know, right. and he, you know, he was a bit, a bit political and he got too politically involved in the situation and himself being, ended up with him being killed. I mean, that's a possibility. Yes. Um, and also there's a lot of mystery about Marlowe in general, because, you know, did he, was he William Shakespeare? Did he, did Shakespeare uh, yes. steal from Marlowe? There is so much yes. like yes. Uh, controversy surrounding yeah. uh, Christopher yeah. Marlowe that that's just another one you throw in the pot, right? And you might get in, you might get into this, um, you guys, when, when we talk about kind of the figures who make good spies and how Walsingham sort of set that, that kind of mantle, uh, because Marlowe was an atheist and Im- he wasn't immoral, but he was am- amoral in the sense that he didn't, he, you know what I mean? Like he would, he would kill, but probably don't ask me to feel any one way about it. Like I don't, I don't have to like it. I don't have to not like it. And, you know, if you think about one of his most famous plays, Dr. Faustus, which is a morality tale. Um, yes. He's very careful to to kind of not, at least in the B text, the, the expanded kind of reconstituted text, he, he's quite careful not to side you know, I mean, as a morality tale, 
um, it's it's Faustus's desperation at the end that kind of throws him to God and pull, he's pulled down to hell. Ultimately, he does he he does repent, but he doesn't he doesn't get that salvation that he's you know hoping for. And it's it's interesting that if you think about Marlowe as a spy in this kind of time and age, he's he's produced a big morality play which doesn't deliver mm-hmm. his protagonist to heaven, even though he has been very very bad. So it's almost like saying there is an extent to to evil and it will lead you somewhere. Yeah. But anyway, I'm, exactly. I'm getting off that's track. Very, that's, I'm that's very, ma- that's very Machiavellian in a way, right? Like, is it better to be feared than loved? You know what I mean? Right. It's very, it's very true in that sense. And in Look of Marlowe too, I also did Edward II and that's a play that, you know, pretty much has a, a homosexual main character. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and, uh, and, you know, and he portrayed that in a way that Shakespeare would never do a play like Edward II. It, that there's just too much controversy about it. And Shakespeare was definitely a moralist, as, as we know. Of course, yeah. Uh, going back, though, to yeah. uh, Walsingham. So, yeah, he was a Puritan, um, but he was also dour uh, and bureaucratic on top of that, which makes sense. But he also possessed a very dry wit and a very self-deprecating humor. Like, he would write to friends and he would talk about how, you know, how unimpressive a uh, husband he was physically, you know, to his wife and stuff like that. So these were the Puritans who got on the Mayflower. Walston was a Puritan. I mean, the guy wore black all the time. And think about the Elizabethan court with all of its uh, collars and its frills and, you know, the fancy doublets of silk gold and, and, and all this kind of stuff that guys like, you know, um, the Earl of Leicester wore mm-hmm. or what the, what the Queen wore, you know, what whatever kind of pageantry she was put, putting on yeah. just in her very image, right? Um, Gloriana, the Fairy Queen, that sort of stuff. And then you have like Walsingham walking around in pure black, basically. Elizabeth called him her Moor. So, <laughs> Jesus, which is kind of a which is kind of a cool nickname in a, in, a, in a racist sense. Yeah, but. If, it, if it wasn't entirely <laughs> racist, yeah, sure. I know. Yeah, but, but you know, but but you know, I think it's just because that pe- he was a bit of a sinister figure in that way, and people scared him. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, that does come off racist. But yes. at the same time, mm-hmm. in the context of the period, you know, that it took place in, I can see why that gained him a reputation. You know what I mean? Yes. Can we call him Sir Francis Moore? Sir Francis Moore. Yeah. <laughs> um. In addition to that, uh, like politically, he supported the colonization of of Puritans in uh, in Labrador, uh, and he also pre- and also pressed for the establishment of a Northwest Passage. Yeah, as I mentioned, he utilized privateers like Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, so they would plunder the Spanish Main, basically like the Pacific coast of Central America and South America, uh, in order to you know to upset the Catholic Empire of Philip II. Um, but he's best known, as we're going to get into, as the father of British intelligence, uh, Queen Elizabeth I spymaster, who foiled various Spanish and pro-Catholic plotters, specifically that of Mary Queen of Scots, and masterminded the information war to ensure that England's decisive victory against the attempted Spanish invasion in 1588 was a, that a victory. Mm-hmm. And would it be fair to say then, Josh, uh, just before you share some details on some of these kind of set pieces to his career, would it be fair to say that in terms of his contemporaries in other in other nations, um, he was heads and tails above them? I mean, insofar as, as England won the battles and has written the histories, we have to assume that for European powers to a sense, yeah, yeah, he was. But is there any indication in the historical record that Spain, Portugal, France, that they uh, also had spy masters? Oh, absolutely. 
one of the things that you learn about a lot of the Catholic plots against Elizabeth I was that this French ambassadors, the Spanish ambassadors in England who were living in London at the time, they were involved with uh, the plots, especially mm-hmm. a lot of Italian right. gentlemen who lived in, like a lot of Florent, like there's a Florentine banker, Rodolfi in particular, mm-hmm. um, that was involved, you know, with some of these plots as well. So you do have a network that, yeah, so the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Philip II's, you know, Habsburg Empire uh, that he had on, because he was also ruler of Spain, but he was also, you know, the, the head of the of the Holy Roman Empire and the Papal States. They had their agents, you know, they had their assassins employed uh, all the time. So, so Walsingham was up against uh, a, a larger network than what he had. Yeah. But I think he was the most astute at playing that game more than anyone. Cool. Uh, one of the things that uh, Budiansky in his book describes about Walsingham is that he kind of had this motto. It was actually the Queen Elizabeth's model, motto, but Walsingham was the key, uh, I guess, advertiser of that motto. And that was uh, video et tacio, see and keep silent. Ooh. So basically, like, no wind is shut up. Like, yeah. don't say too much, just observe, basically. And that's what Walsingham was good at doing. Mm. Like, he was a Puritan, but he wasn't one of those Puritans that would, as I said, would harangue Elizabeth for her language and piss her off. Like, he wasn't a nitpicker Puritan, I guess, as a lot of them were, which is why a lot of people grew frustrated with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of uh, descriptions of Walsingham is that dexterous he was in finding a secret, close in keeping it. His converse was insinuating and reserved. He saw every man, and none saw him. It was his first maxim, knowledge is never too dear. He was no less dexterous to work on humors than to convince by reason. He would say he must observe the joints and the flexures of affairs, and so could do more with the story than others could with a harangue. He said what another writ, that in habit of secrecy is policy and virtue. To him, faces spake as much as tongues, and their countenances were indexes of their hearts. He would so beset men with questions and draw them on, and pick out of them by piecemeals that they discovered themselves whether they answered or were silent. He waited on men's souls with his eye, discerning their secret hearts through their transparent faces. So this is a man who studies people, mm. and he knows what's going on in the human mind behind the eyes, that, or the, whatever countenance that they might show in public, he can see into their souls, I guess you could say. Which is the opposite of what Elizabeth always said, that, you know, she has no desire to see into men's souls, so mm. she didn't so care if you were a Catholic in secret. As long as you were, you know, a loyal subject, that's all I cared about. But Walsingham was like, well, that's all great and all, but I want to see through people, and I want to see what their inner workings are so that I can protect the realm. Uh, but I, and I do get that fully. I do get that. But in order to be a good operative, in order to be a good intelligence spy master, or, uh, and maybe this applies more to agents, you, you can tell me what you think, but you also have to have an ability to get close or at least to negotiate close contact with very important people and to earn their trust. Was, was he good yeah. at that? Yes. Sounds yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in addition to being an observer of the human uh, condition, uh-huh. uh, you know, he was, I said he was dour, but he also had a dry wit and he was very self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. So, and you think of this guy coming towards you very dully dressed and stuff like that. And you get the idea of just like kind of being kind of like a dull bureaucrat, right? But then he's also this this brilliant spy master at the same time. So I got the first part down really- in my day-to-day job. The second part, I'm, I'm still working on it. 
But the, do- the doll bureaucrat, <laughs> I feel like I nailed that in. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> con- con- congratulations. Thanks, pal. I also wanted to point out before we jump into the career, uh, we were talking about the Bond comparisons. There is a man we're going to encounter named Thomas Phillips. Uh, he was a code breaker, and I guess you could say he was Walsingham's Q. Mm. So okay, right on. Okay, okay. Um, Josh, there we go. What were his? What were Walsingham's contemporaries in other places? What were they saying about him? Like, did they? Did, yeah. did, he, well, did his what, reputation? What I just field? mentioned, this guy William Camden that, yeah. that I quoted. Yeah, that that's was consistent. That's oh, consistent with what, oh, okay, people, okay. with what people. Yes. thought of him. Okay. I, Absolutely. But I mean, within the circle of, of friends that he had, you know, they knew his character and they, and they knew that he was a patriot. They knew that he was a good Christian right. uh, and that he believed in protecting the queen and the realm. Uh, but by the experiences of his life, he was shaped into a very zealous supporter of Protestantism and uh, of defending England. All right. So the French, uh, for example, when he went to Paris, I mean, he would have been welcomed, but was he feared? I don't know. It's that that was that didn't really pick up. Uh, to, to them, especially to like you know the, the king and queen that he also had to uh, that he had to deal with in the position of the time that he was mm-hmm. in. Uh, he had to negotiate with them, right? So, yeah. and he was it's also in game, fear of his own of his own family's life as well at the time. So there was a lot of at stake for him. So I think he would probably just have come across as a bureaucrat to them. Yeah. But later on though, like there was, there is some missives that were captured from like, uh, from the Spanish ambassador or French ambassador or operatives of those, of, of those individuals. And they would say how Walsingham was like all Puritans is very smug. And in terms of, you know, like believing that his, that, you know, the Puritans are more annoying because they're so smug and self-righteous in their beliefs. Mm -hmm. Right. So but it's, it's quite he, funny, there, though, there, listening There's some people that you. he could have turned off. It's just funny listening to you say this because, you know, you watch shows like The Tudors or like Wolf Hall or whatever, and you get the impression that it's always... Be, and this is this is the world we live in, right? The media presentation, it's, it's the person first, it's their style, it's their speak. But they would have seen Puritan first, wouldn't they? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yes. Right, yes. The only reason they would, that even like the king of France and his queen mother, for example, uh, would even speak to Walsingham is because of the position that he was appointed to, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. They were talking to the position, not to him. He was just a bureaucrat, but mm-hmm. behind the scenes, he was their greatest enemy because that's where he wielded the most power. Sure. So as a yeah. diplomat, he was efficient and he did his job well and he was, you know, and, and he was loyal. But I don't think in terms of person, he was that intimidating, except, you know, to those who knew him right. or who really knew the true story about him right and how sure. uh now, there is some descriptions there is some descriptions of people like i mean elizabeth called him or more uh they, they also some people describe walsingham uh and and these are uh negative uh descriptions by people who were probably uh not protestant or not uh, loyal to elizabeth or maybe just simply jealous of walsingham's position uh they referred to him more as like a, a satanic figure because of his beard and the black and and all that right oh. uh so Going back to Dr. Faustus there a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So Jeffrey Rush got that yeah. much right anyway. Yeah. Oh, he, he did. If, if you see pictures of Walsingham, you can, if you the painting of him, that the famous painting of him that exists, um, I don't know where, where the paintings are, but all of Elizabeth Privy Council are shown and, and painted, including mm-hmm. Walsingham. It's a pretty close uh, recreation. Uh, Actor-wise, I would say that uh, Patrick Malahide in the series Elizabeth I was probably the most accurate. Okay, cool. Really great series, by the way, with uh, Helen Mirren and Jeremy Irons. Mm. So, Walsingham was born in 1532 in Chislehurst, Kent, uh, during the reign of Henry VIII. 
uh, one year before the birth of his future mistress, Queen Elizabeth I. She was born in 1533. His father, William Walsingham, he was a lawyer, uh, a London lawyer uh, who owned land in Kent. Uh, he died when he was very young, but he left a tidy fortune for his family, and this ensured that uh, Walsingham had his future education prepared for him. His mother, Joyce, uh, and uh, Walsingham's uh, brother and sister, they survived afterwards, of course. His uncle was actually uh, captain of the Tower of London under the reign of Henry VIII. One thing important about William Walsingham and Walter Walsingham, and this is something that was very key to the Elizabethan age, was that after the Wars of the Roses, where basically these old Anglo-Norman families were beginning to dwindle in power, there were very few dukes and earls left after all these civil wars for the crown. Uh, you get the beginning of, of merchant men rising in power during this time and becoming very wealthy. And this is was basically the idea of gentlemen came along, where the nobility was starting to be drowned out by gentlemen. So a lot of the, the members of, of the Elizabethan court were not actually nobility. They were, in fact, gentlemen, uh, such as Walsingham. Okay. Yeah. And this has a lot to go with the Protestant idea of, you know, of the Protestant work ethic of working your way up uh, through hard work and toils and tribulations in order to uh, better yourself as a person. And therefore, your life is better because of that. So the Protestant Reformation allowed a lot of people to move up before when under Catholicism, the world was very much stuck at a certain, you know, hierarchy controlled by the church, controlled by the nobility, and so on and so forth. So very important during the time of Walsingham's uh, birth and his early childhood was that Henry VIII influenced Parliament to renounce papal authority over the English church, which made him the head of the Church of England. Uh, this, of course, he did so that he could uh, marry Anne Boleyn and uh, divorce his, his current queen, uh, Catherine of Aragon, who would not give him a son. Henry VIII had a lot of psychological issues and anxieties about continuing the family dynasty due to his father's tenuous grip on the throne of England, and this pretty much uh, pursued him into his adult life to the form of sociopathic obsession. And this is when England officially enters the Protestant Reformation that was already established by the Calvinists, by Martin Luther. Uh, this was already this big, you know, rage that was going on in, uh, in Europe was now coming to England through Henry VIII, who wasn't really Protestant per se. He was actually a Catholic who actually defended the church, uh, you know, many, many times before as, as a young man in his writings. And he just used it for his own political means, his, uh, his own benefit. And this continues after Henry's death, when his sickly son, Edward VI, ascended the throne of England. Edward was a devout Protestant, though, unlike his father, and he persecuted Catholics. Not in the sense of, you know, burning them at the stake or anything, but they weren't allowed to practice Mass, and they, had a, they could do it in their own homes, but not in public. So it, was very, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great time to be a Catholic in England. So with the whole bond uh, thing I talked about, the Catholic dichotomy and the Protestant dichotomy, uh, just the idea of this world on fire, Protestants versus Catholics. So you have the England and Protestants versus Catholic Europe. That's the Spain, Holy Roman Empire, France, and the Papal States. And of course, you have the Inquisition uh, raging in Spain, where all, the, all Protestants were being stamped out by Catholic forces. Now, Walsingham, we talked about how his father saved enough for his education. Now, his education lasts between 1548 to 1550, and uh, this is when he enrolled at Cambridge University at King's College. 
now there's a King's College in London also, but the Cam- the King's College in Cambridge University is the most, I guess, the most well-known one. Uh, it's known for its certain architecture and that was created, at, that was built at the time. It was founded by Henry VI uh, back in 1441, I believe. Uh, one of the, one of the, actual useful things Henry VI did, um, despite, you know, destroying the realm afterwards. Uh, but basically, King's College was a bastion of Protestantism. Here, Walsingham studied Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Um, he fully converted to Protestantism at the time, uh, becoming a full Puritan. He traveled abroad in Europe upon graduation, and then he, and he learned French, Spanish, Italian. In 1552, uh, he attended Gray's Inn, which is basically like if you want to become a lawyer in England, that's where you go to learn law. William Cecil, who he became protege for, also went to Gray's Inn. But in 1553, Edward VI, the 16-year-old Protestant king of England, died of tuberculosis. And his half-sister, uh, Mary Tudor, uh, she took the throne of England. And Mary was, of course, a very, very uh, zealous Catholic. So Bloody Mary, as she was known, she married the crown prince Philip of Spain, and she pretty much brought the Inquisition to England. So Protestants flee England by the hundreds, thousands, including Walsingham, uh, because, you know, they can't celebrate their religion or practice it in the reign of uh, Bloody Mary. Now, the mentor of Walsingham, as I mentioned, uh, William Cecil, he actually became uh, a secret Protestant and prov- and gave the countenance of being a loyal, you know, Catholic, uh, God-fearing, you know, gentleman under uh, Mary Tudor. But conveniently, he went uh, over overseas, you know, in various diplomatic positions. And this is when he started writing to um, Elizabeth, uh, Mary Tudor's half-sister. Okay. In... 1555-56, we have Walsingham going through Europe, Switzerland, France, uh, well, certain parts of France, but basically ending up in, in Padua in northern Italy. And this is where he studies Roman civil law, I guess, to kind of put the laurels, so to speak, on his own law degree that he was setting up at Gray's Inn. I mean, r- at this time, Roman civil law was the basis for all civil law across Europe. And it's a good place to learn it. Also, Padua seems to be a place where um, he would be he would be protected from you know Inquisition forces in that regard, but he was also very low key when he was there as well. So after thousands were burned at the stake and and uh, the Protestants were pretty much under a reign of fear under uh, Queen Mary, who was a very troubled individual herself and is a very interesting character. I don't want to write her off as some cartoonish like Bloody Mary type, and I'm just doing that you know just for the sake of con- for you know. Uh, condensation, I guess, of, of the material. Mm-hmm. But um, she passed away in November 1558. And William Cecil returned, and many Protestants, including Walsingham, returned to England. And William Cecil is instrumental in ensuring that the the succession uh, goes from Mary I, because she had no issue. So there was no choice but to put Elizabeth I on the throne of England. So all the Protestants return. Yay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yippee! Yeah. Ooh, the peasants rejoice. Do they? Let the peasants rejoice. So when Walsingham returns, uh, 1562, he gets married. Uh, Anne Carlyle, as I mentioned earlier, she dies two years later. Uh, but before that happened, I guess this marriage allowed him to um, give him enough uh, 
what's what's the term? It g- gave him enough clout at the time, uh, especially with his father's fortune still with him, to become MP for the riding of Lyme Regis, mm. which is in Kent somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but uh, I'll find out for you. I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious to see exactly where that was. I'm assuming it's in Kent. Ha, ah, you would be wrong. It's not in Kent at all. It's in the opposite. It's in the opposite side. It's in Dorset. Oh. Dorset. In Dorset. Southwest, oh, okay. not southeast. Yeah. We're endorsing. It was probably Dorset. a position that was available and that he was able to attain it, right? Now, just for the setting up the basis of what's to come, in uh, May 1568, uh, Mary Queen of Scots was deposed uh, as Queen of Scotland uh, for various reasons. I'm not going to go into that. That's a whole different podcast on its own. And uh, she flees to England, and she's basically living in a castle there under custody uh, for, the, for the rest of her life, essentially. Uh, but this stems a storm of Catholic plotting, which is a freaking understatement, uh, yeah. to supplant Elizabeth. Uh, because Mary, Queen of Scots, is the cousin to Queen Elizabeth. All these French, Spanish, uh, and English royal families, they're all connected, man. They're all connected, uh, despite religion. <laughs> Um, now, William Cecil, as I mentioned, uh, he is principal secretary to Elizabeth and he hires Walsingham to work against various plotters. And one especially, uh, who was involved in a, who was supposedly involved in a a failed Northern uprising, uh, named Thomas Howard, the fourth Duke of Norfolk. Now his father, uh, who was also a Thomas Howard and Duke of Norfolk, he was uh, actually the uncle of Anne Boleyn. Yeah, I was going to ask was you also, that. Yeah. If he was yeah. related to the and Howards he, in uh, in the not Howard Castle, but what's the castle she comes from? The I think it's uh, Hever. I believe it is. Yeah, I think you're right. Anyway, yeah, right, cool. So yeah, that's the same well, family. Well, Hever was the Boleyn's castle, but there were because uh-huh. um, Aunt Thomas Boleyn's wife was the sister of the Duke of Norfolk. Cool of Thomas Howard. Anyways, Thomas Howard was executed because uh, his niece. Catherine was an adulteress who he also who also married Henry VIII, and when she went down, so did Thomas Howard, so uh, his father. So mm-hmm. the Duke of Norfolk, he's a Catholic, uh, and uh, he is plotting against Elizabeth for the for the throne and working with various um, Catholic agents throughout Europe to do so. So this leads into the first big moment of Walsingham's career, which is the Ridolfi plot. Cool. Now. This was, this was around August 1569. Uh, Walsingham was secretly working for Cecil uh, to root out these plotters. Rodolfi was a Florentine conspirator working with Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk, and he was a fervent and ambitious Catholic, uh, like Norfolk was. Uh, Rodolfi was working in London, and Rodolfi was basically the agent that... Um, Norfolk would use with like the the various ambassadors uh, and plotters in London to essentially um, overthrow the kingdom. This would lead to like an, an almost uh, a complete deposition of Elizabeth's rule. And the plan was that Norfolk would wed Mary, Queen of Scots, and depose Elizabeth. And he could do so because of his noble blood. And on top of that, uh, he was a Catholic. And this was all approved by the Pope as well. So this was something that was going, this was something that uh, was going forward very strong uh, and uh, it had to be stopped. And Walsingham was instrumental in that. Uh, 
while Cecil was the one that was the spy master in this sense and using Walsingham to, you know, go over certain documents and uh, just to make sure that they could find a way to trap Rodolfi. Mm. And when they did trap Rodolfi, uh, he was interrogated in Walsingham's own house. And essentially they break Rodolfi and these, and, and these letters are set up to be delivered to Norfolk, which implicate him uh, in the plot. And he was executed uh, a few years later, and he was, he was in the tower for quite a while, but he was executed uh, in December 1572. For those of you who have seen the movie Elizabeth, uh, for, just to go back to that film, uh, the Duke of Norfolk was played by Christopher Eccleston. Uh, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. Uh, well, what's he called? Doctor um, Who. One of the Doctor Who's. Doctor Who. <laughs> one, of the, one of the Doctor <laughs> what, Who's, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who's, he, who's he what? A Time Lord. I was, I was going to say, yeah. Oh, yeah. Pro- Professor's... Uh... Was it in um, Community? It's Professor Space Time. Like it's a joke on Doctor Who. Oh yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, I was just going to say though that <laughs> um, yeah so so yeah so Christopher Eccleston he was a Time Lord. That's yeah. what I meant to say. Yes. Yeah. 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 Anyways, whatever. Um, Rodolfi, of course, was executed as well, and that plot was uh, stamped out. Now this work led Walsingham to represent uh, what led Walsingham to represent uh, the, their fellow Protestants in Spain in France, and these were a group called the Huguenots, and they were negotiating with Charles IX, the Catholic King of France, and he was appointed, I guess, their arbitrator for the negotiations. The work that he did here, uh, pretty much. Uh, was noticed by the Queen and the Privy Council and Lord Cecil. So he was then made ambassador to France. So him and his family, uh, his wife Ursula, their young daughter uh, Frances, they head over to Paris where they lived in a nice house uh, in the city in which they were able to, um, where he was able to, I guess, uh, continue his diplomatic duties. And this is when, uh, I guess, this is when he was started to begin a political career for himself as a diplomat, as someone who was able, who was exposed to, I guess, the greater circles of European society. So he was slowly becoming a known force outside of England as well. But in terms of being a spy master, I guess he was still embryonic at this point, just based upon, you know, just the small work that he did for Cecil during the Rodolfi plot. So are you saying at this point then that this is kind of where he kind of had, even though they didn't have light bulbs at that point, but this is where he was kind of like, well, okay, I see what I can do and sort of what's there for me and like I I can do this and I, I, I need to do this and I know how to do this now. Let's keep going further with uh, with this sort of style of work. Do you think? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And uh, uh, so what it's the not a small resume had... point, like negotiating with the French crown. You know, I mean that that's not that's not like no, you know just yeah, it's not like a delivery boy. You know, you, you've got to you've got to have that sort of ability to earn the trust of foreign nationals, and you have to be um, disciplined and civil educated. and educated and literate. Yeah, I mean. This is obviously, I think, what Jeff's saying is spot on. And, and this is just me reading survey notes and listening to you talk. But this, to me, is, is kind of the coming out party, right? It really is. Absolutely. And he also had a big burden on his shoulders as well. Because while Sorry, he, he had a what? France, a big bird. What? What'd you say? <laughs> he might he have, also had but... a burden on his... Sh- yeah. Well, actually, he was into falconry. That was one of his hobbies. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, that's better than you, I don't you think can imagine he... it is. 
I don't well, think he brought his back. Falcon into the uh, okay, into okay. the. Uh, okay. I don't think he brought his Falcon into uh, you know. The are, we, are we still talking about there. the same thing here? Are we? Because I'm thinking Big Bird. I'm thinking that means something different. But okay, he never brought his Falcon in. All right, all right. Hope he did. Yeah. I hope he never did. brought his Falcon in the palace. Is that like some kind <laughs> no, of like exactly? And, and and just so your historical memory might cheat you there. So Versailles wasn't built at this time. So it would have been like the Paris, like Ile de France. Um, mm. I forget the name of it now, but they used to. Uh, there's a pal. There's the, the original palace of the King of France was in Paris. Is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Not outside the city. No, because Versailles was a cloth. hunting lodge. Yeah, <laughs> Versailles started out as a hunting lodge that was dilapidated, and then it was built up by Louis the Fourteenth into like this incredible, you know, uh, uh, palace that you know that's world famous, historically famous for being, I guess, you know, the center of a very decadent regime, right? The Sun King. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Did they? Did they still make sun chips back home? Yes, they, they do, sure yes. do. Rachel's like the spokesperson for the show. Is she? Because you can't get those here. Wow. You can't get those. They're here. very good, yeah. They're oh, we, we, we should send you some via mail or something. An yeah. empty bag. They were great. Just imagine how good they would have tasted yeah. if you had them. Flat, flat pack, like 15 or 20 different sun chip packets. So it's like an envelope. I'm opening it up. Ah, fuck. And fitting with Louis XIV, there's a French onion, there's a French oh, there onion flavor too. There nice one. Okay, cool. Right. Oh, great. Uh, now, of course, the key mission that Walsingham was given as ambassador to France was to negotiate the marriage between Elizabeth and Henry, the Duke of Anjou, who was Charles IX's younger brother. So he was there basically to deal with the king and the queen mother, Catherine de' Medici, yes, of that family. And... Uh, he was basically there to negotiate to see, you know, uh, to arrange a marriage between the two of them. Despite the religious differences, politically, it could have been a good value because if Elizabeth marries a Catholic king, a Catholic uh, prince, then that could also be beneficial to the Catholics because that could be a way for Catholicism to come back into England again. So, you know, it's basically firing over the sides of the bows back and forth, right? There, there's, all, there's like a verbal barrage, I guess you could say. So Walsingham became very good at this. Now, during the time of these negotiations, uh, something terrible occurred in Paris in August of 1572 during the Feast of St. Bartholomew. As I mentioned, the Huguenots were the main Protestant faction in, in France, and Charles IX was... Sympathetic to some of them uh, because a lot lot of them were loyal, Um, but at the same time they were also hated by the Catholics there. And the head of the faction of uh, the Huguenots was a man, Admiral Gaspard de Coligny. Uh, He was actually an advisor to the king, and as I mentioned, he was a Huguenot, a Protestant, who were sort of like like Calvinists in a way. So they're very rigid in, in their beliefs, but they're also very loyal. Now, the Huguenots made themselves threatening to Catholic powers, mostly uh, because they supported Protestant movements throughout Europe, particularly in the Netherlands, which is currently in a province of Spain. And Netherlands, the low counties, low countries, as it was known, was was a Protestant bastion as well. So the the Protestants in the Netherlands were being oppressed by uh, the the Catholic Spanish control of that territory. 
And the Huguenots were big proponents in helping out the, their Protestant brothers there, and that made them very despised by the Catholic powers in France. One day, uh, during at the beginning of this time period of the St. Bartholomew's Feast, uh, Gaspar de Coligny was walking down the street and noticed that his shoelace was, unti- was untied. Now, he was about to approach his house where he lived, in, the, in his townhouse where he lived in Paris, and so when he bent down to uh, tie his shoes, uh, a gun went off from across the lane uh, that missed him. When they uh, stormed his ho- the house across the street, they found a single bedchamber with a arquebus on the bed. Uh, Jesus. And I guess you could, s- yeah. Wow. And yeah, very, very modern espionage there for sure. Hey? <laughs> uh, Realistic uh-huh. that it didn't hit anything. <laughs> Yeah. But um, the fact that, uh, you know, Collini had his fingers blown off and not his face, that must have scared the living daylights out of him. Sorry, I just had to put that That's in there. That's good. I like that. I, I like the effort. That was good. Yeah. Plus, you know, like the bedchamber with like the rifle on it. I thought that was a nice living daylights call out too. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Now, the perpetrator of this uh, assassination was probably the leading Catholic figure, not probably, was the leading Catholic figure uh, of the, and uh, who was very loyal um, to, sorry, he was the leading Catholic figure after the king and queen mother of France. This was the Duke of Guise. And uh, once it was established uh, that the assassination attempt to subtly take out Calini uh, failed, uh, the Duke of Guise, with possibly the permission of the King of France and the Queen Mother, took a attachment, detachment of guards to the house of Coligny, smashed the doors down, and took out his bodyguard one by one, and then made their way up to the stairs and walked into the, into the bedroom where Coligny was recovering and transfixed him to a pike. Uh, mm. The body was then thrown through the window into the streets, and uh, right at uh, the Duke of Guise's feet, and it was then decapitated and castrated and given to the angry Catholic mob. So yeah, uh, this precipitated a mass slaughter of, of Huguenots uh, in Paris over several days. Uh, the killing began early in the morning of, uh, the, the, of the Feast of St. Bartholomew, hence the name of the massacre. So... As I mentioned, Walsingham was the English ambassador to Paris at this time. And apart from being nearly broke during this period with his pregnant wife and young daughter, he was kept under house arrest and protected by the king, uh, I guess because they didn't want the English ambassador to be murdered by by an angry Catholic mob. Officially, the king announced that uh, Coligny and his followers, the ones that were killed first, were, were about to stage a coup against the government. So this was basically the official justification of the murders. But of course, the resulting violence was publicly condemned by the king um, until it was put down, finally. Now, during this time, Walsingham allowed any Protestants that he could, any Huguenots or even Englishmen, Protestant Englishmen living in Paris at the time, uh, he gave them sanctuary in his house, so that's something that he was able to do. Two Englishmen were actually butchered just down the street uh, at, the, at, the, at the gates of the house. Wow. So, yeah, it was this a pretty was crazy time. This was bloodshed, like, literally on his doorstep. 
This it literally I'm on a, his doorstep. So I mean, he really brought his work home with him. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. there's basically um, like accounts of the king from his balcony overlooking the Seine, seeing all of the Huguenots uh, who were fleeing massacre jumping into the Seine, uh, swimming or just to drown themselves from being like utterly like, you know eviscerated on the streets. And then they said that the king had his own arquebus and he would pick off the Protestants like in in the river. Well, he but, probably tried to because, you know, our, there's no one that's... Is, yeah. Yeah. A blunderbuss or whatever it is, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> he probably have a better chance just like throwing a bird at them. Yeah. I, I dare I dare say. I, yeah. They, we, we, we were getting into like the muskets that were more uh, efficient, I guess, in the 17th and 18th centuries at this time, right? So oh, yeah. they were still learning how, how gunpowder worked and how rifles worked at this time still. I mean, if you got hit with it, it's going to suck, no doubt. But uh, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's like rock salt. There was no John Wicks at this point, so, you know. Uh, the Pope was really happy about the uh, the death of Collini, the Huguenot leader. Uh, his head was shipped to to the Pope, uh, and the Pope basically, uh, you know, uh, just absolutely basked into it. And he had a mural painted, uh, which you can see, I believe, still today, uh, of like of the of the Saint Bartholomew's massacre and the death of Collini. Do you know? So, who, do you know who sent him the head though? Head X. <laughs> oh man, you know. Back then, you know, even in the medieval ages, like a lot of heads were being sent across Europe, you know, many, many times, lots of rebellions, lots of failed coups, you know, lots of traitors. So someone could have made made a big business in like in in, (laughs) selling heads or transporting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Transporting heads. Well, the Greeks and the Romans were doing it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Need a traitor's head on a pike? Head X will take care of you. Yeah, exactly. Someone probably made a profit through that. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, there's There's a robot chicken sketch in here somewhere. I'm oh, sure there's a ro- oh, oh absolutely, hundred yeah. uh, percent. Right, let's let's skip along then and get get up to some of this guy's highlights because uh, he's not really yet in power, is he? I mean, not not fully. No, not n- n- not quite yet. Yeah, but I want to look at the back of his card. But the important part of the Saint Bartholomew's massacre isn't just you know the utter awfulness of it, but it's that during this time, Walsingham kept his cool and he negotiated a prospective marriage with the, with the friend's throne and his queen. He kept going at it despite the situation. And he actually like was given commands from the queen and from uh, Cecil to basically tell, you know, to make sure that you don't plan, this was not an act of of the state, these mur- these horrible massacres. This was, in fact, the mob. So there was always this diplomatic tension going on and Walsingham held himself up very well in those situations. Especially since that, you know, the king and the queen mother were implicated in the in, in the whole murders, uh, because essentially they staged a wedding between one of the princes and a Protestant princess uh, of Navarre in order to possibly lure the, the Huguenots into Paris around this time so they could take out Coligny. So there's there's a lot of different theories about you know how the massacre occurred. Uh, great book, as I mentioned, the history of France by uh, Norwich uh, really goes into details on this, but uh, particularly on the Duke of Guise and Coligny and the Huguenots as well. So uh, if you're interested, check that out. Now he managed before all this to get his da his 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 wife and his uh, and his daughter out of Paris. He got them back to England, and so that's when his daughter Mary is is uh, is born. So he comes back to England himself. He's recalled from France in December 1573, and he succeeds Cecil as principal secretary of the Privy Council and begins his ridding of priests and growing plots throughout England. 
and this results in his own knighthood in 1577. Right, so, okay. The reason why I bring up the whole, you know, uh, St. Bartholomew Massacre is that this is what really shaped Walsingham. He realized seeing what the hatred that Catholics have for Protestants, he did not want that to come to England, and he would do everything possible to ensure that that, that would not happen because what he was seeing in Paris right now, he feared that's what would happen to his people and to his family, to his friends and, and to his realm. So basically so, um, what you're saying is, so from what happened here and from literally the station, and I'm using that as a joke in the sense, but also how, how they use stations for, you know, station chiefs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. That, that was a bit reaching there. Anyways, I thought mm-hmm. it was funny um, <laughs> or appropriate. But uh, it, it just shows that um, how he decided to use this moment to sort of be like, okay, now I know what I need to do, and I have the tool belt or the you know the the utility belt if we're going to go with Batman, and the yes. shark spray to do it. And so <laughs> yes. I guess this is basically where he was like, okay, so this is my job, and this is and like I now see the the importance of what I need to do, especially with this recent bloodshed and just sort of the world. The world at war and the world that's coming at our doorstep, and we're a small, we're a small nation outnumbered by, you know, obviously, the religion and and uh, and and sort of a multinational sort of force, if you will, uh, going against England. And he's like, I got to do something. It's a great description, Jeff. Thank you. That's exactly multinational force. You encompass France, Spain, well, Holy even Roman Italy, Empire, because it's not even Italy. a united country, right? It's all like the city states and stuff. And yeah, exactly. I mean, it's mostly Catholic, but, but also, yes. I mean, you have secular cities like Florence, like Venice, uh, their own individual city-states. But then, of course, you have Rome and the papal states with that, um, which are allied with, you know, uh, Spain and France, right, because of the, of the, the Roman Catholic religion. So Josh now, I mean, he, he's set up, he's got himself this experience with Cecil, he's got the Protestant resolve, he doesn't want what's happening in France and other parts of Europe to come on to British shore and to kind of upset the reign. He's now very firmly within, and I suppose uh, without the Privy Council, he is that sort of informant and, and uh, bureaucratic figure, though we know what he's doing behind the scenes. Um, and, and I believe there's three or four really important things to generalize his importance mm-hmm. um, are very much waltzing him highlights, right? And I know we, we don't have time yes. to go into all of the things he did, but I would like you to say a little bit about the Babington plot and obviously the Armada, but you got a footnote on the Throckmorton plot too. I, I can see here in your notes and that I, that's one I've heard of. So I know you might have a little something to say about that. Why don't, why don't you just take us through just two or three of his highlights before we finish up here today? Yes. So I guess you could say uh, the first big operation that um, Walsingham masterminded was the Throckmorton plot from 1582 to 84. Throckmorton was a nephew of Walsingham's friend uh, who was arrested and tortured for passing letters to the French ambassador Michel de Castelnau. Now, Walsingham had used an Italian named Giordano Bruno as a spy in the French embassy to learn of a plot masterminded by uh, a Spanish ambassador, Bernardino de Mendoza, to replace Elizabeth with, surprise, surprise, Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots. Mm. This would be achieved through an invasion of England that would work in concert with a staged rebellion to free Mary and then take control of the crown. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So this is the, this is an example of him using a spy of uh, 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 you know within the embassy and mm-hmm. getting the information yeah. he needed in order to implicate both the Spanish yeah. and the French ambassadors who were also sent back to where they came from following um, these revelations. And so that it's very modern. That's like you know that nothing's changed in that sense almost, right? If you want more information on the Throckmorton plot, because it is definitely an important part of Walsingham's career, his first big operation as uh, principal secretary, I, I do recommend uh, checking out Budiansky's book. It's a great read. It's a short read. It's only about 200, 300 pages, uh, but it's definitely worth uh, if you want to explore the Throckmorton plot in detail. But when it comes to, uh, to you know, the famous cases, the famous conspiracies of history, of something that Walsingham was uh, the true mastermind of foiling, that has to be the plot by Anthony Babington. All right, cool. Tell us about that one. All right. So one of the so Anthony Babington and these other five noblemen, the six gentlemen, as they were called, were Catholic sympathizers in England who wanted to once again replace um, Elizabeth with Mary, Queen of Scots. And they were going to do so by assassinating Elizabeth and therefore freeing uh, Mary from her not incarceration, but her house arrest in northern England at Charlie Castle. And to do so. There was a complicated uh, conspiracy. And one of the main things that uh, a lot of Catholic plotters did in Walsingham's time was that they had a series of, of letters being exchanged by their operatives to Mary, Queen of Scots, who also responded to them. And a lot of these Catholic plotters, including, you know, the, the subjects of those plots, like Mary, Queen of Scots, they were very, uh, they were versed in a common code that they would use. Mm-hmm. So this code is basically like a secret alphabet that they would use to communicate that the spy masters, uh, the code breakers, I guess you could say, in uh, under Walsingham were unable to foil. And that's how a lot of these Catholic plots were carried out. Um, of course, a lot of these individuals were revealed when Walsingham heard word of, oh, that noble lady or that nobleman is hiding a priest in their house. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. would go into these old Elizabethan homes and like there'd be a part of their house built where they could tell that wasn't an unusual extension. Mm-hmm. And then they would find within the walls a whole, a priest living there with like the sacraments and, mm-hmm. you know, the Eucharist, all of all of that, all there for them to practice their religion. And uh, yeah, and that was basically a form of treason, essentially. It's like, kind of like, you know, they have in those old houses, the stepmother's door, where they would be that door that led to nowhere outside. Is that what <laughs> mother it was? Mother-in-law's door. <laughs> not mistaken. Or mother-in-law's the mother-in-law's door. There you go. It's like, is that where yeah. they kept them? Because I'm like, if everyone knew they that. They called them priest really... holes. <laughs> I know, I'm not going there, but okay. <laughs> That's what they called them. They're called priest holes. And you can uh, pew, pew. make any connotation you want between that whatsoever. I mean, well, there's a priest, uh, isn't there a priest hole in um, Skyfall? That's right, exactly. Oh, that's a priest hole. Okay. Remember, okay. The, remember the, the one he escaped from from like the, from the I guess the the incendiaries or the napalm yeah, that yeah. gets fired into yeah. the into the house, right? Oh, Under Skyfall. Yes. Okay. Cool. He, he uses gotcha. a priest hole. Gotcha. Yeah. Exactly. So was it English? Sorry, I was going to say just for the quick, just for the language. Was it they, they weren't using like uh, like uh, another language, or was it just symbols? It was symbols. Okay, okay, like windings. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, wind, basically windings. Yeah, I'll, I'll get into detail on cool. that. Cool, awesome. awesome. So as I mentioned, a lot of the spies that Walsh and him used, uh, they were people like in prison who wanted to reduce their sentence, so they would you know make friends with certain Catholic gentlemen and. Uh, once they got out, you know, they would hang out with those people and they would go drinking and, and they would basically then, you know, just lure these sympathizers into their own conspiracies against themselves, implicate themselves, and then they'd end up, you know, on the gallows because of it. But that's how Walsingham worked. He would trick people 
into, you know, betraying themselves, essentially. That's, that's, what, that's how he worked. And one of the people that he, he was able to arrest was a man named Gilbert Gifford. Um, historically, he was a another Catholic Gifford? sympathizer. It's another Gifford. Another Gifford. Another this Gifford. Is the Gifford. This is the Gifford that I was talking about originally. Right. Oh, oh, so it's the same Gifford, right? Just mo- it's the same Gifford. Just yes. moved not, to Thursday not night. Just moved to Thursday night just moved to th- Right, okay. I got you. Exactly. Got you. Yes. Yes. So Gilbert Gifford, that's a very alliterative name as well. It yeah, is. Uh, it, is. it sounds like a Harry Potter character, G-G. actually, more so yeah. than anything. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's Gilbert Godfrey I'm thinking of. No, Gilbert Godfrey, that's like the Jewish comedian guy. Hey, I'm Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> ah, yeah, I'm stuck. Jafar. Yeah. What do you want? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's fucking Jafar. Right. Sorry. Right. Uh, did you ever did you, did you ever hear him read uh well i think it was like 50 shades of gray or something like that a, he has uh, a podcast been... you know he's got his own podcast oh. yeah. yes did you ever his, he hear his version of the aristocrats oh man it's amazing <laughs> oh. no and his have, dad was uh was like the old uncle in um christmas vacation hello homer <laughs> and, yeah homer's there for sure Sorry, but anyways so gilbert gifford was he a catholic sympathizer or was he a double agent uh, a man of mystery i guess you could say no one's really sure about that but he was arrested in December 1585, and uh, Walsingham then used him against the Catholic plotters. Right, willingly, or did he did he did he kick up a fuss? Or uh, I believe it was like for a pardon, essentially. Right, okay. That's that's pretty much. And that stuff for. doesn't change. <laughs> the, yeah. Just the year, everything. That stuff still is the same. Go ahead. <laughs> now, before he got arrested, uh, he worked with the six gentlemen, including Anthony Babington, and. Gilbert Gifford had come up with an idea to smuggle letters to Mary Queen of Scots to Charlie Castle, and the way that he he did this was um, through the bung of beer bar- of beer barrels. So, like like when you take the cork out, you know that that part in between that hole in between the bung, as it's called. Uh, he would basically take like the the coded letters and put them in the beer barrels, and then they would be then be brought into the castle. And then one of the queen's like secretaries would then op- the queen, I mean Mary Queen of Scots, would basically remove the message and bring it to her. So and then and that's how they would smuggle it because at the time no one drank water because it wasn't very healthy. Yeah, like, yeah, so sure. beer was something as a substitute yeah. that people would drink because. And so that was the most best way to smuggle stuff in. So, of course, he told Walsingham all about this. And so what happened then is that basically he would get the letters from, from Mary, from, uh, you know, he, he would get the letters from Babington and co. between and Mary, Queen of Scots. And then he would give these coded letters to Walsingham started in July 1586. Now, Walsingham hired uh, a code breaker named Thomas Phillips, uh, who spells Phillips in a very different way. But that is, yeah... That's how it's pronounced, anyways, as, as if you would spell it the regular way. Anyway, <laughs> uh, English language was still kind of modern at the time. It hadn't quite developed into what it, what it is now, I suppose. I don't know. So Phillips deciphered the letter, and he did so by uh, what's called cryptoanalysis or frequency analysis. Because if you take a letter that has, if you, t- if you take like um, any kind of written passage or paragraph or pages of letters, um, there is billions and billions of possibilities on how you could decipher that. So that is not much to work with at all. But using something called frequency analysis, you can chart how many times uh, certain letters appear in in, in in writings. Like you could take, like for example, uh, a p- passage from a novel and then compare it to something from some like newspaper article, and you would find the same frequency of letters. 
or in terms right, of okay. how it's done. So there's a rhythm. So basically, rhythm you're following. It's it's a, a rhythm meter. you're following the statistical <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pa- yeah a meter in, in a way exactly Jeff now uh, from the book on uh, by Singh that I mentioned uh, by Simon Singh uh, the one in regard to the code book mm. uh, I learned about this guy named um, Abu Yusuf Yaqub El Kindi uh, back in the ninth century uh, he was a teacher at the House of Wisdom in Baghdad which was considered like the premier university of the time. And he wrote a treatise essentially on code breaking. And these books were found in the Ottoman vaults in Istanbul, and then they were translated. And this just revealed the whole science of crypto analysis. And uh, it was very possible that a lot of code breakers at that time uh, were aware of these studies of frequency analysis. And this is what Phillips used to crack the code uh, of, of the Babington letters. Ooh. So that is cool. Yeah, that's so really neat. Tr- it's kind of like a Rosetta Stone type thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's what, yeah. that's what it sounds like. Absolutely. And think of also like the Caesar cipher, you know, that Julius Caesar used in his missives in Gaul, because that was one of the most famous early forms of code breaking was the cipher that he used to send messages to his generals. But he didn't use symbols. He actually used like let, like actual written words in Latin. And he, and he created his own like cipher of those like regular appearing words. Right. Oh, so, okay. yeah. So basically how it works is that if you substitute symbols uh, that appear in the same proportions of the letters, then you, you can replace them. Then you can replace them. So, one, so you take a symbol and substitute that with the, with the letters in the same proportion, uh, then the, the code can be cracked if you can figure it out. So for example, one of the common symbols that appears in the uh, letters that were received was a loop. Uh, and what was, was a loop with a tail... And because it appeared so commonly, well, the most commonly appearing letter in the English alphabet is an E. Another symbol appeared uh, just a little bit more, a little less frequently, and that was a backwards three. So the second common, you know, appearing letter in the English alphabet is T. Then the, the, the third one that appeared the most frequently was uh, a ring. So that could very well be the letter A. So then, you know, basically you're kind of playing hangman or wheel mm-hmm. of fortune, really, in a way, because you're substituting the letters, because you can see more and more that with a T, and then if you have like a T, a backwards three, and then you have like the, the second, the third le- the third letter being a tail with a loop, then obviously that's the, yeah, right? Yeah. So you're able to slowly put things together and then figure things out in terms of find, you know, of, right. of, of, of cracking the, the code. So Did it wasn't- say how long it took him to, to, to crack this by any chance? Well, he worked on it from 1586 up until uh, 15, almost within the span of a year, man. No more oh, okay. than that. Okay. Right. Cool. And they were getting letters for they were getting the, the, uh, letters quite a while. So pretty cool on Thomas Phillips, yeah. that's for sure. It is cool. Yeah, and it does make you think uh, in in a different, very different context of of the uh, you know the Enigma codes, and you know it's it's obviously very exactly. different. Yes. But this idea of national security. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Absolutely, it's cool stuff. So when they revealed the letter, this is what it said uh, to Mary Queen of Scots from Babington. Once it was deciphered, or part of it, anyways, Babington would lead these gentlemen um, and a hundred followers uh, to quote unquote undertake the delivery of your royal person from the hands of your enemies, for the dispatch of the usurper from the obedience of whom we are by excommunication of her made free. Oh yeah, the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth, by the way, as a 
a legitimate and heretical whore. That was the Pope's words, by the way. Um, so, nice guy. Because Elizabeth was the daughter of Anne Boleyn and right. Henry VIII, yeah, yeah. and they don't recognize yeah. Anne Boleyn as, of not. Why as the wife have? of Henry VIII. No. Exactly. So... There would, so, yeah, so for the dispatch of the usurper, from the obedience of whom we are by excommunication of her made free, there be six noble gentlemen, all my private friends, who for the zeal they bear to the Catholic cause and your majesty's service will undertake that tragical execution. And then the queen replies, which is how they finally nail Mary, Queen of Scots, is this. The affairs being thus prepared and forces in readiness both within and without the realm, then shall it be time to set the six gentlemen to work taking order upon the accomplishment of their design. I may be suddenly transported out of this place. In, uh, and, then, and then she basically, so she basically, she's saying is proceed with the assassination of my cousin. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, once he figured this out, uh, Phillips drew a hangman, like on a gallows on the letter. And this passed to Walsingham, who then passed it to Elizabeth I. Interesting. Is there anything that has mentioned anything to do with Fleming and did he like uh, history like in regarding Elizabeth or Walsing or any kind of thing about this that I'm just curious just because of you know intelligence and spies like if if just being who he is and, a, and an author like do you guys know like do, I, I'm not I don't want you to I, I, I assume given his education and being part of naval intelligence I'm sure he was probably aware of Walsingham like I, I'm I'm sure a lot of them are yeah I mean I've got the I've got the field. Pearson um, or I've got the Pearson biography which I read a couple of years ago and I mean he was fascinated with history um, right. Fleming was as a student as a young man uh, like absolutely fascinated yes but I right. don't okay. I don't recall Pearson having okay. commented on any particular affinity for Walsingham or anything like that. I mean, the, really, and it's funny you mentioned Stevenson earlier, when Stevenson entered Fleming's life, like, almost everything else stopped. Do you know what I mean? In yeah. terms of his, like, laser yeah. focus in on this is not just the guy I'm admiring, but this is this is the life I want to lead. So it was, yeah, it was really the obsession almost. Yeah, anyway. and I think I think Pearson kind of just takes Actuation. off that way. Um, so while there is certainly reference to a lot of the things that Fleming read and a lot of things he likes um, as a young man, as a student, I, I don't remember, but I can certainly go back and look. I can do a little fact check on that one for you because it is a good and it is a good linking question. Uh, yeah, so that, that's all. I just I was just curious if you guys knew that. So, the fate of Babington and his conspirators. Mm -hmm. Hung, drawn, and quartered. Ooh. An English tradition since Edward I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a t-shirt. 1586. And then uh, then we get 1586 uh, from 87. Mary, Queen of Scots, is uh, convicted of treason and incarcerated in uh, Fotheringay Castle. And uh, when she is finally executed, it's the queen that has to sign his her execution warrant. Mm -hmm. And she vacillated incredibly. I, um, oh, I bet, yeah. It's very improper right. for a monarch to put another monarch to death. It just wasn't done. Mm -hmm. And being her cousin, even though she plotted against her, and she was very angry at Walsingham for putting her in this position. In fact, the guy that uh, who's, who actually finished, like, signed, like, the letter after she said to sign it and send it off, she actually had that guy sent to the tower, this poor guy, Davison, mm. who was working under Walsingham. Uh, and he was in the tower for a couple of years, actually. Um so she was very upset. And afterwards, uh, she wanted nothing to do with Walsingham whatsoever. She showed him no more affection or any sort of uh, gratitude for his services. Wow. Like, Yeah. She was a very interesting woman, but she was also very petty in her own way. Is that, 
that almost kind of sounds like a lot of how espionage, like people that work in the, not that I work in the industry uh, or in that, you know, but <laughs> it almost sounds like it, it's that kind of unsung work. Like you do all this stuff, like you save the world, and but you can't tell anyone about it. And you can't, like you, no one will ever know what you did. And so this guy did that. And what did yes. you get for it? Testicular cancer. Well, that and yeah. well, I meant yeah. the other guy, the, uh, the other guy that got sent to the tower too. Is what I mean. Like, that, oh yeah, 100%. that's I, but both. Like in that case, it's like, oh yeah, here, here's a good a commercial on how to be a spy master. What, what what do you get out of it? Not a whole lot. <laughs> I know exactly. Well, that service is its own reward. Well, exa- I guess, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, as for Mary Queen of Scots, she was executed in in eighty seven. Uh, it took three uh, chops of the. Uh, three swings of the axe to cut off her head. And uh, then when they lifted her head up, she had a wig on because her hair was oh, all gone. right. And the head f- fell to the ground because they held her up by the wig. Right. So it was an awful, awful affair. And when, and the poor, pre- the, I can imagine the poor messenger that had to explain that to the king, to the queen yeah. after it was carried out. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Budiansky mentions from the, from the, from the, Witness reports that he read that no one was comfortable during that whole situation, despite, you know, the fact that a person was being executed, just how it went down was unfortunate as well. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. Definitely would have been a uh, a, a premium service for headaches, that one. (laughs) Yeah, definitely for headaches. Definitely. Additional cost. Yeah. Yeah. Safe transfer. So I guess, so with uh, Mary Queen of Scots... So with Mary Queen of Scots out of the picture, I guess Philip II's main agent or henchman, I guess you could say in the Bond context, was defeated. And so now we move on to uh, the final victory against uh, the evil forces of Catholicism, quote unquote. Sorry this offends any people who are Catholic listening to the show, and it's not my intention whatsoever. I'm just talking about the political realities of that time. Well, yeah. just wanted to uh, just wanted to clarify that. No, that's a good point. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, is you're literally just explaining sort of you know uh, past times and uh, and what it was. So the, I mean, you know, it's it's not this is not your. Um View. This is literally history. It's historical. So, this yeah. is this is literally this is literally the history yeah, exactly. But I want to point out too that Walsingham wasn't a saint either. I mean, the guy oh, used no. torture and yeah. stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, they employed torture despite being Christian. Also, the Elizabethan administration, Walsingham included, were very big on the um, control of Ireland, and there was some terrible stuff done in Ireland uh, to the Catholic, to the Irish people there just for being Catholic, basically. Uh, uh, by the English, like Sir Walter Raleigh, who was a young man at 20 years old, who was one of Walsingham's agents, like he led a whole battalion that murdered hundreds and hundreds of um, Irish women and children, even so, in the name of the Queen. So, I mean, Ugh. it's it's a very ugly, gray, gray world, unfortunately. They were men of their time, I guess you could say. So, the Spanish Armada was the last big event of Walsingham's career from 1587 to 88. His main target that he was able to um, that he was that he was able to put in his sights was a man named Edward Stafford, who was a Catholic sympathizer. Surprise! Who was working in the English embassy in Paris, but secretly providing intelligence to the Spanish and actively misinforming Walsingham and the administration of their of their duties, of of all of like you know of like their patrols, of of uh, their supply runs. Uh, the munitions, all these things were being misinformed to the English. But Walsingham knew about Stafford's loyalties and he knew that there he was being misinformed. So then he also made sure to misinform Stafford mm-hmm. about the Sp- about their movements as well. Okay. It's double ruse. Now, as I mentioned, 
A yeah. couple of ruse, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like mincemeat. Mm-hmm. So mm. uh, Sir Francis Drake, who I mentioned is the privateer uh, hired by the Elizabethan government to annoy the Spanish, uh, he actually attacked the harbor of Cadiz. Uh, and, uh, this, and this was just to create a whole sort of, I guess, stirring up of... of and uh, forces and movements of troops to so they were able to I guess recalculate you know the Spanish intentions from this and also add to the disinformation campaign even further to uh, flummox you know the Spanish and their spies like Edward Stafford for example and through this they learned that the Spanish despite you know they're preparing for for it because Francis Drake encountered you know a whole bat- uh, flotilla in Cadiz. Uh, they knew that they wouldn't be attacking in 1587, despite what Stafford was writing, that the plan was set for an invasion. So the plan was that Stafford's writings would basically uh, trick the English into preparing too early and not and being taken unawares right. uh, a year later, essentially. It's a uh, smart, maybe, smart idea. Making them drop their guard. Yeah, exactly. Um, so 1588 in July, though, England is prepared thanks to Walsingham. The Spanish Armada, uh, the majority of it is broken off Calais. I mean, you've seen, you know, you, you've read in history about Elizabeth's famous speech at Tilsbury in front of the troops where she's wearing full armor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I may be a woman, but I have the heart of a king uh, mm-hmm. and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, that was there to the troops and everything. But really, the real battle was, f- was fought just on the other side of the channel off Calais. Mm-hmm. And the Armada was broken, the forces of the Duke of Parma. Uh, and then what in, what happened then is that the remainder of the fleet tried to try another maneuver and go all go all around uh, the north of, of England, uh, trying to come in through the, the west. Uh, and what happened is that they ran into a storm, and that whole storm broke the remainder of the fleet, and they were shipwrecked on the coast of of, of England. And a lot of them were slaughtered by locals when they when they landed on the beaches from the shipwreck. Wow. So that was pretty much the end of Spanish ambitions in England, and England became the premier superpower of the world at that time. It went from being a penurious nation under Elizabeth from its start to being like essentially like this is the beginning of the British Empire. Because after Elizabeth dies, James the Sixth, uh, who was the son of Mary Queen of Scots, uh-huh. actually, uh-huh. he becomes James the First of England, and he pretty much establishes the the idea of you know. Of, of of bringing Scotland into the, the into union, England, yeah. like the idea of, of the Britain idea of was established yeah, essentially. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there you go. Like that was pretty much like Elizabeth and her regime, and all those who worked in her regime, including Walsingham, and then all the all the work that he did to ensure the victory of the English against the Spanish. That was instrumental in making England into the power that it became. Yeah, it's it's neat. I mean, just citing those two, just the, the Babington and the uh, and the Spanish Armada, you know, Walsingham's involvement in both of those scenarios, it, it isn't overstating the fact to say that without his and his companies, uh, and, you know, impact that, yeah, I mean, history could have taken two different turns there, man. Real big, big style too. Oh, yeah. It's always wondering, like, you know, if the Greeks, you know, lost the Battle of Salamis, like, you know, and the Persian Empire mm-hmm. took over, you know, all of Greece, yeah. the whole world would be changed, right? Or if what, what if Caesar, you know, yeah. uh, actually made it to his campaign to Parthia before getting, you know, he planned to do that, like, That's three right. days before yeah. he was assassinated. Yeah. After he was assassinated, uh, the Ides of March, he was to embark on to Parthia mm-hmm. and revenge, you know, uh, the, the Roman losses there, and who knows, he could have been greater than Alexander the Great. They could be, the, like, I mean, the Latin language and the European culture could have been carried all the way to 
the middle, you know, to the far east. You know what I mean? Like, who knows? Yeah. So this is the Spanish Armada is just one of those moments where, yeah, like, that's absolutely imagine right. there's like, lots of those moments. Yeah, yeah. There's a line in oh, the second Elizabeth film, The Golden Age, where like Elizabeth says, "In the bowels of these ships of the Spanish Armada lies the Inquisition, and that was coming to England if they invaded and took control of England." And so you can just imagine how. Our history, even like in North America, would be changed if the Spanish took over um, England at that time. Mm -hmm. So, really, a whole different really world. Absolutely, stuff. really good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Ah, so really. and it just goes to show what a pivotal figure this spymaster was mm -hmm. in terms of preparing everyone for this. I mean, like you know, like I know that you know there was a I forget his name, but there was a, a brilliant admiral uh, who, who 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 led the Spanish Armada. But then you also had Raleigh and Drake also participating in that battle as well. But I mean, Walsingham you can see was an instrumental figure in this uh, in this war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he he had he lit, he made his mark on on a lot of different things. That's why I guess he would be considered a spy master. He he had a, he dipped his pen in in a different bunch of different inkwells to make, uh, to make you know that the map of what England was after that the way it was. Like if you're gonna say he was some kind of like a, I'm just trying to make, I'm trying to make a smart cartography uh, example. No, it's I'm good. not, but but I I see what you're saying though in regarding Walsingham mm -hmm. uh, and, and how. His importance to all these events, uh, to the defense of the British realm, and going forward, and on how uh, on how that worked. Also, you got to think the act of God of that of that storm that ran the Spanish ran into as well. You got to wonder, you know, who's on whose side is God on? The Protestants or the Catholics? Right? I don't know. Um, or maybe it's just a random chain of events, you know, that, that occurs. Uh, to conclude, uh, on April 6, 1590, of supposedly testicular cancer, uh, Sir Francis Walsingham died. His daughter, Frances, uh, was at that time Countess of Essex. Uh, she was married to the, Countess, the Count of Essex, who was a later thorn in Elizabeth's side near the end of her reign. Uh, so he, he did have his family established in, I guess, the, no, the nobility of that time, the, the gentlemancy, I guess, that existed. He was buried with honors and whatnot. He was actually buried at um, an older part of Westminster Abbey that burned down, and his whole and his body was destroyed, unfortunately. But there was a memorial that was set up afterwards for him after the Great Fire of London, mm. which is when his body was oh, destroyed. Okay. Yeah, great number of uh, great um, number of remains, probably of historical importance, lost then. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that happened just after you know Charles II uh, took. Uh, he came back after you know after the whole Restor English Republic yeah, of yeah. yeah the Restoration yeah. yeah. Which was which was it was a great start to a new age that's for sure, um, yeah. So he was fifty eight years old when he died, um, and he spent his final two years ensuring England would be safe. And with no gratitude from the Queen, he served. Although I would I would think Elizabeth, being a private person, was probably grateful for Walsingham, but she would never publicly show it. In my sure. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, there are other people at court that she admired much more, like Robert Dudley, for example. Yeah. But really, that's that. That's the life of Sir Francis Walsingham. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I know he wasn't like some debonair, daredevil, you know, type individual. He had his own form of courage in my that, you know, it wasn't a James Bond kind of courage, but he definitely had the means and the will to make sure that his country was safe and his queen was safe. So you got to give him respect for, you know, being loyal and 100% perseverant in the defense of the realm of England. Oh, yes. And, uh, yeah, and I think if, you if know, anything comes through it, your chat is, today, it's that, Josh. It's that idea that Walsingham was a very staunch was, defender of the realm and believed fiercely in what he was doing, uh, for, for better or for worse. You know, I mean, 
posterity can argue that one out, but it's um, yeah. I mean, his, his position in in the development of empire is is really uh, indisputable. Oh, absolutely. And just in terms of like, you know, it, it, this, this guy's always been a shadowy figure in terms of the history books. And I think bringing a light, you know, of his personality, of the man that he was, and he was actually a living, breathing human being and not just like this, some sinister, you know, force behind the scenes, you know, that, that gets, you know, shown in popular culture in that fashion. You know, he was a warm blooded man who lived and died in the age that he lived in. And um, there are many people, I think, who had the same attitudes and feelings in today's world. And despite it's a very different world that he lived in, uh, there is sort of a, to me anyways, a relatability to him as an individual, um, in my opinion. Um, And I I like the fact too, that he was a bureaucrat before he was, you know, the man of action. And I I find that really fascinating about him and that he was able to get all this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, usually Usually the way around. Exactly. So you're telling me, you're telling me that there's hope for me. Is that what you're saying? You're saying that I can, I can take the dull bureaucrat and, I was going to say, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Oh, no, that was on the way in. That was on the way in, yeah. Right. Good good work, Josh. I mean, that's a real feather in your cap, buddy. We know, obviously, Jeff and I, because we're close to you, that that you've got a real interest in in Tudor history and history generally. It it comes through there. Tudor, tutor. um, (laughs) Tudor, tutor. I'm a tutor, tutor. That's awesome. I hope for those who were listening, you know, that I wasn't my intention. You know, I don't want to give you a wall of text, like... And I'm really glad you guys came in with me on this too. Like, you know, you guys had some really good points through the show. So don't sell yourself short. Um, maybe that Frank Gifford comment, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll reconsider. But uh, that was a touchdown. What are you talking about? That was a touchdown. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! We're using American football terms. We're talking about real football. You know what I mean? Hail Mary, Queen of Scots. Oh, yes. Right. Right. Gridiron yeah. football is the And call. it's funny you mentioned uh, Ambassador Chapuis because Chapuis was played by uh, Eric Cantona in Elizabeth. That's right. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, what, right. What, what was I saying? Yes, Josh. Well done, buddy. This was the first of our double O, uh, our double o origin episodes. And you've uh, you've given, I think, the history fans who maybe aren't, aren't quite as Bondian uh, something to listen for, and maybe our Bond fans like myself, you know, you gave us uh, food for thought and really, really good history and context there on this very fascinating Thank figure. You. Fascinating. I enjoyed figure. doing it too. So, yeah, so good. thanks for the opportunity of doing this history thing in general. You know, like I love all the stuff that we do on this show, but something that was particularly to my interest, I also really enjoyed conveying that to you guys and sharing that with you. So, Super. thanks for listening on and, and for all the points you guys put in there too great help on that and uh i hope everyone else had a great time as well yeah, yeah i'm sure i'm sure our listeners did oh yeah oh, i'm sure they did yeah i'm really looking forward to uh particularly jeff's section oh. on the early history of um, oh, you know of modern espionage yeah like because you're covering uh world war one and world well, war two i mean parts, i'm covering right? well the, the or just the, the quick origins of how it started you know like before 1909 and then 1909 but what i want to basically do is i'm going to sort of talk about uh, key individuals that were in the intelligence community, British intelligence, but also that were sort of um, in operations that would have definitely inspired Fleming um, to to create mm-hmm. the Bond character, and also real people that he did know that were key, obviously important people sure. in the intelligence, uh, like Bruce Lockhart and and, and people like that. That, uh, hmm. anyways, That'd but be great. We'll see. Good to learn yeah, more about them. Up. Yeah, yeah, and coming up. 
for sure. That will be good. Um, and your Camp Beck stuff's going to be really good. Oh, yeah. We put a little bit of Canadian content in there, too, which is... Uh, and what we're going to do, we're going to pepper these, you know, every three or four episodes we'll, uh, this season, we'll, we'll kind of we'll dip into those uh, double O origins. So we've got a couple of different uh, episodes coming up in the, in the immediate future. We've got a, another a return, a return to Bonded Blockbuster, the 007 rental lists, which was one of our a return uh, customer, a return customer, one of our real fun episodes from last season. We decided to bring back, um, so that'll that'll become coming up soon. And of course, yeah, we've got uh, a great review of uh, From Russia with Love, the novel coming up, and we've got our three non bonds, which we're going to launch soon as well. So all sorts of fun stuff coming up on Bond by Numbers. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much. It was, it was great listening to you, Josh, and uh, taking a back seat today. Thank you. Any uh, closing statements or words or wishes for our wonderful listening audience? Uh, I'm glad that I wasn't waltzing him. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's a hard job and a hard time. And I, hard job I mean, and being a hard spy, time. In, to, being to a spy in. in any time is hard. Mm-hmm. Being a mm-hmm. spy then, yeah, it would be even worse. <laughs> Absolutely. Imagine being in, during, like, in Paris at that time, too, hey? Yeah. I know. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't want that. That's just insanity. I'm sure also, too, it'd probably take a, a toll on you afterwards, too. Like, I'm sure as a Puritan, like, he probably didn't like to see people tortured, but he believed what he was doing was right. But at the same time, like, at least he would go home to his family and he had that at least, right? So yeah. I guess there's some things, some, there's, it's, it's when things like family and, and friends and stuff are really important in life when you have to live a life like that. Um, and that, I guess that keeps you centered as an individual and keeps you upright, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, it's... And, and steadfast. Steadfast, definitely. It, it is, it's always a challenge to look through the lens here of uh, history and, and judge these people as morally upstanding. Well, that's... I mean, it's, uh, exactly. It's a exactly. trick to do that, and it's a challenge. Yeah. But that's why I like these sort of dives into context, because they give us, as fans of a series, you know, where we celebrate a hero, it gives us a, a very a more complex view of, of how their life came about, kind of. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's not all martinis and gadgets. No, no, no. But anyway, at the on, on that note, uh, thanks once again, everybody, for listening, and Josh for steering us through that very deep and complicated history of Walsingham. I think it's a nice addition to our season, and uh, glad yes. to get our double O origins off the ground. Yeah. Cheers. Okay, take care, everybody. Take care. Bye bye.